This episode is brought to you by Fizzy Vantage, now the official climbing nutrition sponsor of the Nugget Climbing Podcast. Fizzy Vantage is the leading brand in climbing nutrition, and just to name a few names, their pro athlete team includes Matt Fultz, Paige Klassen, Drew Ruana, Jonathan Segrist, Natalia Grossman, Melina Costanza, Brittany Gorris, Jordan Cannon, Katie Lambert, Jimmy Webb, and Daniel Woods. The list goes on and on. Basically, the who's who of high-performance rock climbing, they're all using Fizzy Vantage products. I personally love the supercharged collagen. I'm obsessed with getting my fingers stronger, and I want to make sure that I'm giving my body all the building blocks it needs to make stronger tendons. If you would like to feel the Fizzy Vantage your Yourself, head over to fizzyvantage.com and use code NUGGET15 at checkout to save 15% off any full-priced nutrition product. That's fizzyvantage.com. Use code NUGGET15 at checkout to save 15% off your order. This episode is also brought to you by Crimped. This might be the best tool in the app store when it comes to training for rock climbing. Here's the deal. The Crimped app gives you access to 75 different workouts created by world-class climbers and coaches, Tom Randall and Ollie Tor of Lattice Training, for free. So you can download the app right now, try it out for free, and see if you like it. And if you want even more training power, consider signing up for Crimped Plus. Crimped Plus unlocks three main things. First, instead of 75 workouts you get with a free version, you will have access to over 200 workouts and progressions. Secondly, with Crimped Plus, you can create your very own training plans right there in the app. And finally, you'll unlock a collection of skill templates designed to bootstrap your training and focus on specific areas of improvement. For example, if you want to improve your finger strength, or your flexibility or conquer one arm pull-ups. Well, guess what? There's a skill template for each of those things and many more that will guide you through the process. So check out Crimped. Go to crimped.com or download the Crimped app for free from the App Store and consider signing up for Crimped Plus. Crimped, training on your own has never been easier. And finally, this episode is brought to you by Arcteryx. When Jordan Cannon, a young climber infatuated with climbing history, meets climbing legend Mark Hudon, a Yosemite big wall free climbing pioneer, they form an unlikely partnership around a common goal. Jordan wants to free climb the free rider on El Cap in a day, and Mark hopes to free the route in as many days as it takes and accomplish his lifelong goal of free climbing El Capitan. Follow their story in Free As Can Be, a short climbing film brought to you by Arcteryx. I watched the film a few weeks ago. It's 31 minutes long. It's so well done. It's a story of climbing partnership and adventure. And if you love this podcast, and especially if you loved my episode with Jordan Cannon, episode 115, by the way, or if you loved any of my other episodes about Yosemite and El Cap, then I know you'll love the film. So check it out. Head over to YouTube and search for Arcteryx Free As Can Be, or use the direct link right there in your podcast app to watch the full 31-minute film for free. Once again, you can head over to YouTube and search for Arcteryx Free As Can Be, or use the direct link right there in your podcast app to watch the full 31-minute film for free. Arcteryx presents Free As Can Be, and we hope you enjoy the film. Hello, friends. Welcome to another episode of the Nugget Climbing Podcast. This is your host, Stephen Dimmitt, and my guest today is Neil Gresham. This guy has been at the cutting edge of British climbing and of coaching for over two decades. 
Neil is one of those jack-of-all-trades climbers. He has performed at a very high standard in basically all of the disciplines of climbing, from sport climbing to deep water soloing to winter climbing to traditional climbing. He's also got 25 years of coaching experience and is an excellent coach, probably one of the first performance rock climbing coaches to talk about training information in the world. He's been doing it for a very long time. And he's also continued to improve over the course of basically his entire career. That's something we talked about in this conversation. Neil had the greatest spurt of improvement in his own climbing between the ages of 45 and 50 and has climbed as hard as 514C. And he recently put up a first ascent of a route called Lexicon in the UK. It's a trad route given the grade of E11. Of course, we talked about that in this conversation and so many other things. Neil's super insightful. He's a really thoughtful and analytical guy. He's got tons of personal training and climbing experience as someone who's been doing it for so long. And he has a lot of great insights because he's been a coach for so long and has noticed a lot of trends. And I know I say this a lot, so it probably doesn't mean anything, but this really was one of my all-time favorite conversations on the podcast. I think no matter who you are listening to this, if you love climbing, there's something in this one for everybody. So without further ado, I hope you enjoy this wide-ranging and very fun conversation with Neil Gresham. Neil, it's uh, it's great to have you here. I've been really excited about this ever since I talked to Tim. I talked to Tim Emmett a while back, and man, he just told such great stories about you and living like you guys live together, and some of the stories about the stuff you guys were doing on the Gritstone. Just uh-huh. it's just thrilling, you know, and made me really excited to talk to you. So it's great to have you here. Great to be here. Thanks. Thanks very much for the welcome. It feels a little bit ominous that it's under sort of uh, Tim Emmett's guidance. uh... (laughs) (laughs) It's okay. Yeah, I I was tempted to outsource the interview to him and just ask all his questions, but I I, I botched it. I forgot to message him until this morning and he hasn't got back to me yet. So we'll see if he sends me any questions real time. um, There's a chance we'll get some more Tim in this this interview, but... Block him. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but I thought, so there's, I have this whole outline in front of me. There's so much that I'm excited to, to cover with you. Um, a lot of it has to do with your coaching and all these insights that you have, having such a breadth of experience in climbing, you know, being an athlete yourself for so many years and also being a coach for so many years. I think that'll make up the bulk of our conversation, but I want to kick things off with the mythical challenge I just have a note in front of me that says the mythical challenge. Does that mean anything to you? And, and can you tell me about the mythical challenge? This isn't some weird esoteric thing in North Wales that nobody knows about, apart from a few people in a pub somewhere in, in the Welsh hills. Uh, it's just the trifecta, the, the um, triple crown, they call it. Is, it. is it this? Yeah, yeah, that's it. Yeah. Do you want me to tell you about it yeah I'd lo- yeah i'd love to hear about it what is the mythical challenge is, i mean is that like the going name for this thing in that region or is that just something that you had called it all right okay so it was something that was spoken about for ages i think we're going back to something like 2014 15 now but this is something that i'd heard about when i lived over there and local climbers had this idea for doing jerry's roof which is like a classic v9 moffat boulder problem 
connecting that with Lord of the Flies, which is a, a like an E6 Ron Fawcett trad route, kind of up on a mountain crag, quite run out, fairly serious. And then finishing that up with this um, super classic grade six icefall, um, central icefall direct that was first climbed by Mick Fowler. And I mean, each three of them are sort of, each three, they're, they're, they're iconic sort of examples of their genre. But the question was, could they all be done in a day? And the grades are not super hard. It was it was much more about conditions because, you you know, really you'd hypothesize that if it was warm enough to do the boulder problem, it, or, or the trad route, it'd probably be like too warm to do the ice climb. If it's cold enough to do the ice climb, you probably couldn't do the trad route, that type of thing, you know. And sure enough, yeah, it got done by James McAfee. And I was really, because it sort of represented a sort of challenge for an all round climber. And I, I guess I've always, I'm probably one of those. I'm like a sort of jack of all trades, certainly a master of none. I, I thought it just, this really inspired me. And I thought it was a good sort of opportunity to see if I could sort of pull it all together um <laughs> but it was quite yeah it was quite eventful <laughs> do, you, I mean, do you want me to tell you what happened yeah <laughs> yes please yeah that's why you're here um okay. when, when was this when was this i think it was 2015 <laughs> winter 2015 and I, I charged over to north wales after i heard that james mcafee had done this had you tried it before him i hadn't no okay um and I, I arranged to meet a couple of up-and-coming video makers, this guy, Lucas Wozeka, and his partner, uh, Wojtek Konakovic. They, they really wanted to film this. And so I, I devised a strategy where I was going to start off on the boulder problem on Jerry's roof. Then I was going to go up to the Lord of the Flies, the trad route, and then finish on the ice route. I just got back from Norway, so I was, I was going well on the ice, but I hadn't bouldered for ages. So I was actually most concerned about the boulder problem. So I got up super early and I spent the next of the entire morning failing on Jerry's roof, the boulder problem. And I basically didn't make it out of the, the car park because it's like a drive-in <laughs> boulder by the side of the road. So it was the most like unadventurous and sort of anticlimactic failure. And I've got these two guys who've come to film and they're stood there with their arms folded going, uh, are we going to get some action here? And they only had one day. So they, they basically just had to go. Now then, so I, I, I did actually need at this point a little bit of moral support because the weather window, the cold snap wasn't due to last and it was bitterly cold. So, so it just so happened that Tim Emmett was in the area. Oh boy. And I always remember that Tim, he always had this thing that he could always do Jerry's roof. It was always his party piece. And so we got up super early. We were there at the bowl at like, you know, seven in the morning, first light, whatever it was. And Tim just like cracked his knuckles and just, did it first go without even warming up and went, he went, there you go, easy mate, you know, like that. And of course this sort of um, riled me a bit and uh, you know, there's nothing like a bit of competitive spirit with, with your, with your best buddy, you know, and I thought, oh, I'm not going to be burnt off by Tim here. So that was quite a powerful force and it seemed to kind of get me up the boulder problem. So from then we charged up the hill to go and try Lord of the Flies, this trad route. And it, it's quite a serious, I mean, to give you some idea, it's like sort of, Big vertical, like 40, 45 meter wall, 7A plus in sort of standard French wise, but it's protected by the bottom part, at least it's protected by quite small RPs. It's quite serious. And then the last part culminates in this massive run out above good gear. But there was basically water running down it oh. because there was a <laughs> snowbank on the top and there was like, there was literally like 
it was running with water and a lot of this water was freezing. So there was bits of verg glass here and there. So I was just, I, I set off, I got like a third of the way up. I was trying to fiddle in RPs, but my arms just went, my fingers went completely stiff. And I just, I was just like fumbling and like, I, I couldn't place any gear in the crack. And I was, I was really concerned about decking out. I somehow managed to climb down and I just thought, well, that's it. We're not going to continue with this. But Tim was like, no, 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 let's do it. Let's do it. And he set off up this route, really climbing in a down jacket. He got really high on this route. And at one point he was shaking out at the, on the top run out and he did really well. He got really close. He was running out miles above his gear and he started laughing. And I didn't know why, but he was like putting his hand in his chalk bag and scooping out these big shovels of what was like toothpaste. It was literally chalk that was just, that water was just running into his, it was running down the top of his down jacket, out of his down jacket <laughs> and into his chalk bag. And he was like glopping this toothpaste down that was like landing on my head. And in the end, his elbows just went up and he, he took this like 40, 50 foot lob. But of course he wouldn't let me off. I was like, <laughs> let's, you know, he was like, you, you, he's like, you know, you, with this sort of compelling enthusiasm that he has, he's like, come on, come on, Gresh, you can do it. You can do it. So I went up and like, I ended up in the same position as him with the chalk bag full of toothpaste with my elbows up, totally unable to feel my hands or fingers and, and, and taking the same whipper as, as Tim took. That was that day. We had basically one more day left of what looked like cold weather and then it was going to warm up. So I got up the next day and I ended up doing a ring round and getting a climbing partner, this fellow who I'd never met before, this Aussie guy called um, Robin. And um, sure enough, I managed to get up Jerry's roof first go, charged up the hill to Lord of the Flies. It was a bit warmer and it had dried out a bit. So I was like, oh, you know, this is giving me a bit of a stare here. Ended up getting to the top of Law. There was a big snowbank on the top at the top of this run out. And I mean, I'm literally like 25, 30 foot above my gear. Oh my and I had God. to mantle into this snowdrift. <laughs> you know, like, you know, like just sort of classic top out that you do, but like groveling into the snow. Yikes. Yeah. Got to, the, got to the top. Charged down the hill, went back to the car, got rid of all the rock climbing gear, picked up the ice climbing gear, went over to the north side of the, of the other side of the valley and up to centralized full direct this three pitch vertical water ice route it was looking worse for wear and the temperature was really warm it was really warming up and there were all these there were like these stress cracks in it and i was just looking at it and i mean bear in mind i just got back from norway i i, I did it didn't i wasn't psyched out but i had difficult it was I, I thought i know i can climb this but I'm really not sure about the condition that it's in. It looks right on the cusp. So I set off up this route, did the first pitch, did the second pitch. I mean, it all went fine because I was, I was, as I say, I was in tune with the ice and you know, I got to the top and I was like, oh, it just felt amazing. You know, I put quite a bit of effort into this challenge, got to the top, calling the ropes, victory salute, you know, high five on the top with this guy, Robin. And suddenly there was this almighty crash, like a kind of a avalanche sort of, Serac Foley type sort of rumble and all this like this big cloud of smoke came up and I just knew I knew straight away what had happened and I looked at this guy Robin and he looked at me and I, I mean our faces just went I mean his face went white I'm pretty sure mine did and we kind of timidly like little mice like crept down off the route and like to, to look and assess the damage and sure enough there was this massive like house sized pile of ice boulders 
at the base of the root. Oh my god! And the entire root, the entire root had come down, <laughs> and it 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 basically came down about four or five minutes after we topped out. Wow! So. I mean, I'm, I'm I'm sort of making light of it now, but honestly, at the time, I wasn't laughing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and it was one of those, <sighs> definitely one of those moments when you you used up one of your nine lives. But but also more importantly, I think existentially, there was a, a real like a proper. You know, I think we all look back on our climbing and we think that was a day when I learned something. That was a you know this was a day when I learned something. Well, that was the day when I learned the pitfall and the trap of like, you know, this obsessive tunnel vision that we climbers often get when we got our eye on the prize, you know, and I just committed of just, a, just this basic error of, I don't know, I, did, well, I, did, I didn't take my eye off the conditions. I was looking at this thing, but of course I was looking at it through rose tinted spectacles and I was saying, yeah, yeah, you know, it'll be all right. It'll be all right. And the reason I was saying that is because I wanted to climb it, but you know, like when you take a step back, you just think how unimportant was climbing that? I mean, mm. it's much better to be alive and not have climbed that. So really, you know, let the mountains always going to have the last word. And that was the day when it reminded me of that. <laughs> oh man, what a story. <laughs> yeah. It's uh, yeah. What a lesson to learn. And it's, it's interesting. I mean, that's like the kind of mo that's like the darkest expression of that. But that happens to all of us in so many ways, you know, like more often for me, it's been injury. You know, I have some little tweak, like oh, my, I know my finger is sore, but I think I can do this boulder problem. So I'm just going to try it anyway. You know, like that's, yeah, there's so many ways yeah. where, where that way of thinking can kind of crop up for us. And when we just start over my enemy, because we love climbing so much. Right, right, right. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. And it manifests in all sorts of different ways, doesn't it? From ice balls that fall down to finger tendons that go crack <laughs> right yeah yeah well thanks for that story man that, <laughs> that's a hell of a story <laughs> oh my gosh yeah I'm, I'm actually really i don't want to talk about this for too long because i i it just is so different and interesting to me i could ask you questions about it for hours but what is it about a challenge like that that speaks to you because i don't have that you know like and, and that seems like something that's somewhat particular to the UK. You know, I had a really similar conversation with Dave McLeod about some of the linkups that he's done. And I just don't get it. Like, it sounds like a lot of suffering. It, it doesn't really, it isn't what climbing is for me. It isn't what I love about climbing. You know, it's, it's, it's such a far cry from being interested in like overcoming a really difficult move that feels impossible and trying to turn that into something that feels graceful and possible. So what is it about a challenge like that, that, that spoke to you? Well, I enjoy that too, you know, picking a hard move or, or a series of hard moves and just focusing on the pure physical difficulty of it all without, you know, having any type of suffer fest or any, you know, dangerous element. I, I, I love that too. And, and I feel that it really, I mean, they say, you, you know, you don't pick the projects, they pick you. And it, and it really does depend what, what kind of mood you're in at the time. And, and I, but I just feel because I've been climbing probably a pretty long time, 40 odd years, I think if I'd just pursued one type of challenge, I could have stagnated, you know, whether mentally or physically or both. I mean, if it's just about pure physical performance or like power output, you know, 
I, I'm not sure if I would have been able to sustain it, but because I've almost flitted, well, I have, you know, over the years flitted between sport climbing, trad climbing, deep water sailing, ice climbing, whatever it might be, you know, like if I if I push myself really hard physically, usually the I the I rebound off the back of that and think, right, okay, well now I just want to have an adventure where it's not so much about physical difficulty. It's probably more about finding myself in hair-raising situations like the one I just described. Uh, it's like a sort of cyclical thing for me. Yeah, that's interesting. I'm actually always interested in that too, with people like you who identify as more of a jack of all trades. I'm always curious, like, do you think, because you're also interested in performance climbing and you've climbed really, really hard grades. You've climbed 14C, I believe. Do you think that cyclical approach to climbing has served you in your pursuit of just harder climbing? Or do you think you could have climbed 9A if you had focused all in on bouldering and sport climbing and, and things like that? We have this strange upside down like sort of topsy-turvy demographic in climbing that the sort of Benjamin Button effect, you know, like when we see uh, Olympic gym, you know, gymnasts being like, you know, retiring at the age of 18 or, or you know, ballet dancers and, you know, it's, it's so and most other sports, you know, having kind of so-called professional athletes in their late 40s or 50s, you just don't really, you don't really hear of it. And, you know, what is it about climbing? I mean, you could, you, you could theorize that it's the, the high skill element, but, you know, there's a high skill element in in ballet and, and gymnastics, but you know, I I feel like I've I've made improvements not just because I've learned tricks and you know gained experience and my techniques improved. I mean, I, I feel I feel like I mean, well, I have got stronger in my late forties. You know, I've got I've got the benchmarks to prove it. I mean, the, the hangboard the hangboard never lies. Mm. Um, so. Yeah, I mean, I, I I went up a bunch of grades. I mean, the biggest spike I've had in my climbing career has been in the last five years. I mean, between the age of forty-five and fifty, I went wow. up, you know, two sport two sport grades and one trad grade. And I feel like whether or not I'd climb, you know, God, isn't it easy in climbing to say, oh, you know, yeah, I probably could do that or, or something. But <laughs> right. I over the years would never have been tempted. I would never, I could never have said to myself, oh, I'm sure I, I could on-site AA, so I don't really need to do it to prove it to myself. I had to on-site AA to prove to myself that I could do it. And it was the same with like red pointing HC. A good friend of mine, Gaz Perry, like goaded me at the age of 45. He was like, oh, Gresh, you know, you better climb HC or you're not going to do it, are you? And like, you know, <laughs> come on. And, and I, I wasn't able to turn around to Gaz Perry at that stage and say, you know, oh, I, I could do it. I don't need to prove it to him or or, or me. You know, because I because I didn't think I could. I, I wasn't sure. I, I I had to go through that process of self discovery to do it. But having hit HC and then you know quickly afterwards hitting HC plus and feeling like I was on a a sort of an exponential curve in my climbing on a real like riding crest of a wave, I just feel like I could, I could say that if I just kept going with it, I would have I would have got to nine A. Um, almost to the point, in fact, to the point where I'm not, it's not like burning a hole in, you know, in the back of my, mm. the back of my brain. It's not, I, I don't feel, even though obviously 9A is, is, is an important watershed, I, I don't feel desperate to go out and prove that to myself because I feel like I know what it is I'd have to do in order to do it. And it's much more down to the externals, you know, the things which people never talk about in 
training books or anything like that you know it's it's really the all the other stuff that's going on in your life um i mean we're all under pressure at the moment we have different pressures at different stages in life. You know, young people are under a lot of pressure and I don't want to in any way suggest that, oh, because I'm an old guy, I've got more on my hands. You know, we've all got a lot on our hands. But, you know, when you're someone you're my age, you're thinking a lot about finances, providing for your family. Uh, you're thinking about, you know, your kind of security for everyone that you live with and you're thinking about um, time with your kids. You know, you don't want to be... One of these, like, again, like tunnel vision climber, trying the next project when your kids are, I mean, as mine are like six and eight years old, you know, they, they want their dad around, you know. So am I going to just go and climb 9A, like bloody mindedly, mm. uh, you know, to the point where I would sort of potentially jeopardize those things, you know. It, you, I also think, and I, I wondered if I would ever reach the point in climbing where I kind of felt satisfied with what I'd done. And I, I think I just feel like that now. Wow. You know, and I feel quite liberated as a result of that because all my life I've been driven by the next project, the next design, the next, like, you know, urge to go one better, one bigger, one better, you know, just keep going. The next one, the next one, never satisfied. You know, I think, I think I feel differently now. I do what I do. Yeah, that. That's really interesting, actually, and that's really encouraging to hear because I think we all hope to arrive at a place like that. You know, I mean, as much as it's about, like, I've talked about this a lot, like realizing that this journey is about the process and enjoying the journey part of it and not just looking for fulfillment in those achievements that come along the way, hopefully, because that they're never enough. You know, there's always the next one and the bar always moves. Um, so I'm, I'm excited to continue to fall in love with hard things, hard objectives, and, and enjoy that process and enjoy what that process gives to me in my life. But I also hope that when I'm 50, I feel a little bit more satisfied than I do now, certainly. So that, that's really cool to hear. And I'm curious, exactly, did that come from a certain achievement or a maturing? Or what, what do you think caused that shift? I think climbing Lexicon last year was a major part of that. I felt like I'd put, that was the route that caused me to, that forced me to put together everything I'd learned to, to summon all the tricks that were in the toolbox and find a few more and just go for the really deep dive. You know, I just wonder, I mean, God, it is amazing. I was going to say like, you know, how many Olympic golds can, can a certain athlete win? And the answer is quite a lot. A lot of them keep coming back and doing it. But, you know, for me, that was my one sort of shot at anything that felt like, a, like it was the one time when I, I did actually give everything to, to my climbing because normally there are these external factors, you, you know, having to, I mean, I, I cleared, I cleared a complete pathway for that so that my entire life was devoted to it. And I just don't think I could do that again. Mm. Um, you know, so I, I've kind of had to say, there's not going to be another lexicon. And, you know, the important thing is to be content with that. So I, I think doing that route was, was really, um, it was the, it was the high point. Mm. And I, I just have to acknowledge that. That's really cool. I actually, I watched your film yesterday in preparation for this conversation. I had, I'd seen the trailer and I've, I had a whole conversation with Steve McClure about it as well because he ended up repeating it shortly after you did it. Um, but I hadn't watched the whole film yet. So I watched that yesterday and 
I mean, my palms are still sweating like 12 hours later. <laughs> so, but it's cool because you said that, like you, you topped out the route and there was this really beautiful, heart-wrenching, emotional moment. And you said something along those lines, like, I think I'm done. And, and you know, not with climbing, but like I'm done with, yeah. with chasing, yeah. you know, big, scary, dangerous objectives, or at least really difficult objectives like that one. So yeah, that's amazing to hear that that's had some staying power for you. And it's really brought this the shift exactly because i suppose it's all well to say those things when you're stood on top of the climb right and just send but like how do you feel six months down the line and and the answer is i feel exactly the same way i i, I just knew and i think i also knew before i sent it as well i kind of felt i, I can't because like it really is type two fun isn't it like pushing projects i think pushing anything to that sort of level you can get into quite a strange like sort of detached isolated headspace you know mm -hmm. you're in you're operating in your echo chamber um i was doing lexicon i was work i was training for it during the olympics i was listening to a lot of the interviews so I'm watching the olympics on tv when i was doing these like stretching sessions and rehab sessions and there was one athlete who, who said she had really mixed emotions about the gold that she'd won. And she described the process of preparing for it as, as dehumanizing. And she said, having won the gold, she felt more like a real person. And I know exactly what she meant. Hmm. You almost become like a robot. Right. You don't think of you, you, you you're, it's, you're a series of sliders. Where's my half crimp? Where's my, where's my drag? Where's my lock off? You know, like, where's my flexibility? How many laps of, can I do of this circuit with how much rest? Can I reduce the rest? No. Okay. What's my diet like? What am I eating today? La, 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 la. You know, you, you, you stop thinking of yourself as a person. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty full on. I mean, it's fascinating and I love it. And, you know, this is also, of course, the stuff that I draw upon when I coach. And I, I mean, I don't come across many people who, who go in that deep, but if I ever do, then I feel like I've got stuff for them because I've been in that place myself. Mm. Will you uh, will you talk a little bit about Lexicon and share a little bit more of the context around that one for people that haven't seen the film, haven't heard about the route? Because this was, I mean, it's been a while. It was almost a year ago. I believe it was last September that you sent the thing. But yeah, tell me a yeah. little bit about Lexicon. So Lexicon is a route in the in the English Lake District, which is a really like picturesque, scenic mountain area in the northwest of, of the UK. The rock is um, it's like a sort of metamorphosed igneous rock. It's um, like rhyolite. It's very, very rough, very compact. It's got good friction, uh, small edges, very, very... Um, it's like to climb on it would be similar to climbing on something like Smith Rock, you know, just this ver rough rock with good with good edges. And, and um, the route lexicon starts... It, well, it... it shares part of a line called Impact Day, which was a, a Dave Burkett route. It was the original route on this wall. And it's, it's like a high crag, it overlooks this beautiful lake. And Impact Day takes a kind of S-shaped sort of weaving line up the wall. If, if you like, it takes the line of weakness. Mm. But, it, but the kind of real showcase of this particular wall, in my opinion, is the, the kind of final head wall. There's a, there's a break, like there's a, there's a horizontal break that you can stuff with cans about two thirds of the way up. And then there's this amazing blank headwall. And, and when I went up to look at impact day, I realized that the kind of main central line up the middle of the headwall hadn't been done. And I abbed it. It was very dirty, covered in lichen. So I brushed all this lichen off. 
And I found a bunch of little crimps and little side pools and, and realized straight away that, that it was climbable, which was you know, very exciting. But impact day, the route to the left is described and that's given the grade of E8. And so for those of you who don't know the British grading system, what that means is like a French AA or like a, what's that? 13B. B yeah. run out, you know, like big run outs. And the run out above the break on uh, on the adjacent route impact day is split by a bomb-proof peg. Okay. So from the break, you go like 20 feet, clip the peg, and then you go 20 feet again to the top. And that is still described by a lot of people as run out. And a lot of people sure. <laughs> take, take big whippers off that route. So with Lexicon, there's no peg. You have to go the whole way up the headwall with, no, with, with, you know, with no gear. So you're basically going like, you know, 40 feet above like that. And, and, and it's, and it's, it's sustained climbing. Um, you could argue that the last move is the crux just because it's endurance based. And also the last move is a little bit dynamic and you have to throw for a, like a slot. And you know, like how sometimes when root setters, they stack two holds together, they put a little mm. cap on. So yeah. you have to be accurate. And if you're a little bit jittery, you miss. So it's basically that move at the top of the run out. So even if you got there and you felt totally, you know, you're looking down and your rope's going down like, you know, 35 feet. And even if you got there and felt strong, you'd still have to basically flick and go for this slot and hope that you, you know, that you're feeling lucky. Yeah. There's like a little, little bit of luck precision element to it. A little it. bit of luck to, yeah. and, a pre and precision to catch this hold. And I mean, <laughs> so... Yeah, I, 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 it was a, a year-long kind of campaign for me, really. But it was off the back of the fact that I climbed 8C+, which I believe is 14C, isn't it? Correct, I, yeah. I, I had done that at Malham like three, four years ago. And then after that, I thought, right, okay, I've got this new level of sport climbing fitness. You know, what am I going to do with it? And the answer is because I'd sort of, I thought I'd given up on hard trad, but I thought, well, hang on, if I've gone up, two grades on sport why don't i give trad a go again and see what i can do and i, I ended up doing a new route um an, a, a direct finish to a, a one of the lakes is sort of hardest e9s this route called if six was nine it kind of climbs two-thirds of the way up this amazing overhanging wall and then it traverses off and there's this head wall above similar idea to to um lexicon but the climbing on the head wall is not as hard anyway i did this particular route in uh in 2019 and that was like what we brits would call e10 which is like um 8 plus 8b really run out so i felt like i was kind of gathering a bit of momentum with this and then off the back of that was when i found the line of lexicon and i just thought right i'm, I'm really on i'm on a roll here i've found a great line and of course you know, you're always full of doubt and you think, well, you know, maybe it's not that good. Maybe it's not that hard. And, you know, Steve McClure was, who's a good friend of mine, was in the lakes. You know, he shot me a message and he was like, you know, hey, Gresh, can I come up to Pavey? And he ended up checking the route out. And, um, you know, he, when, he, when he popped over the top, he, you know, he'd had a couple of runs on a top rep and his, his pupils were really dilated. And he was just shaking his head, you know, he was like, it's, it's one of the best of its kind. It's one of the mm. best things I've, I've ever been on. And also, you know, he said, it's 
one of the hardest too. And he, he said, because uh, I didn't know about the grade, and he, he said, oh, I, it feels a pretty similar proposition to, to McLeod's iconic E11 Rhapsody, which mm. Steve has done. Uh, I, I knew it wasn't physically as hard as that because Rhapsody is 8C at least. But the fall on Rhapsody is more reasonable, let's say, um, whereas the fall on Lexicon is a lot less reasonable. Um, after rope stretch and everything else, if you, I, I, I mean, I should have mentioned if you fall off the top of Lexicon, you're quite likely to touch the ground on rope stretch. Mm. Whereas with Rhapsody, there's no way you're going to hit the deck. Also with Lexicon, because the head wall is overhanging more and the lower wall is, is vertical, you swing in quite hard. So not only are you going to fall, you know, 70, 80 feet, you're going you're gonna to swing in hard and you're going to stop, if you're lucky, a metre or two off the deck from the last move. Uh, and that's if the air gets everything right. <laughs> So that's so so that's so that's lexicon. Oh man. And yeah, for people listening, like it's it's mind-blowing to hear that and it's probably hard to even believe, but if you watch the film, it's like there's no hiding this thing, you know. So this is a 514A give or take where if you fall from the last few moves, which is the crux because of the endurance component, you're literally going to take like a 70-foot whipper and almost hit the bottom of the cliff. And there's, in fact, footage of Steve McClure going for it, and it was just kind of this surprise try where he hadn't really intended to try for red point and just kind of got swept up in the in the moment. And mm -hmm. he takes the biggest fall I have ever seen. It, I mean, you guys show it in the film like two or three times, and it is just like he barely fits in the frame. The camera's, you know, like quarter mile away or something, and he barely fits in the entire frame. It's just so intense. And I, I wanted to say, too, that you were talking about the move to the slot, like right at the end, the dynamic move with some precision to it. And the footage that your videographer got was so good because you can see your face when you're going for that move when you when you sent the thing. And your eyes are just bulging and you're holding your breath. And I literally held my breath when you were when you were getting towards the top of that thing. It was so exciting. Man. <laughs> Yeah, because no, because nobody's <laughs> actually fallen off that move. I mean, it, mm. what's so bizarre is that this route has had four repeats. It's oh, had, really? It's had, five, it's had five ascents, but nobody's dropped that last move. Steve dropped the move before that and stopped two meters off the deck, but nobody's dropped that last move. <laughs> so, you know, and Steve's quite light as well. He's quite small and quite light. I mean, a heavier, taller climber falling off the last move i mean who knows it would be close because also the thing is if the b-layer pulled the rope tight that would be one thing but like you have to pay a little bit of rope out because it's a dynamic move you know you don't want the rope mm. piano wire tight for that last move so <laughs> <laughs> okay so this begs the question and it feels it feels almost like a Silly question. You know, I've watched a lot of the grit films. Um, I know that the ethic in the UK is to preserve these adventures on these routes. But people, you know, so many people listening to this are from the United States and that would never happen. Like no one would ever find a line like this and think, cool, I'm going to climb this on natural gear and go for this 40 foot run out at the top you know, people would throw five bolts in the thing and it would be this amazing classic that would get repeated all the time. So I have to ask 
From your perspective, um, just for context for people listening that don't understand this, yeah, okay, you know this UK ethic. Why not throw some bolts in this thing? Like, what what okay. is it behind that? Yeah, can you? First of all, there's some extremely bold stuff in the states. It just doesn't necessarily fit the same criterion as British bold trad climbing. I mean, you look at some of the highball boulders that mm. you know you that you guys are doing, I mean, that are like insane. They're like higher than gritstone crags. I mean, they're just not, we wouldn't call them boulders. We call them like E9 or E10. You know, this insane highball stuff gets done, but also right, that's I true. Mean, think on, look on El Cap. I mean, some of the pitches that get like aid pitches that get freed that are still like done on like bad aid gear, like hooks and like copperheads and, you know, bits of up, up, you know, there's some sick pitches on, some of the big walls, you know, some, I mean, Dawn Wall being a case in point, I mean, some super bold stuff. But how, I, I'm going to try and answer your question, like, why Why is it like this in the UK? Okay, so what we don't have many of are so-called mixed routes. And by this, I'm not talking about, like, ice and rock. I'm talking about mixed in terms of the gear where you have some trad and some bolts. Like, you go, for example, to... I don't know, like first place I went to that was like that was Mount Arapiles in Australia, where you you have like you'll follow a crack and the crack runs out and you get to a blank bit of wall where there'd be a big run out and they put a bolt in or two bolts. You do the blank bit of wall and then you get to a crack and then you go back to trad again. So we don't have many routes like that in the UK. It's either or you go to a crag that's a sport crag, pure sport, pure bolts, or it's a trad crag and it's pure trad. Now of course, most people think of gritstone, they think of the video hard grit and they think, you know, that's insane. Why is gritstone so dangerous? You know, like, why don't they put bolts in that stuff? Well, that video only shows you the really poorly protected roots on gritstone. Gritstone is actually, generally speaking, a very, very well protected rock. It's very solid, rather like granite. It's very compact and there's lots of cracks in it. So if you want to go and climb on gritstone, like you can do well-protected routes all day long. But if you want to do one of the blank faces or one of the arrets that doesn't have much gear in it, you can't just like change the rules and put a bolt in it. You either, you know, this is what I'm saying. You don't have to take risks. You just don't do the risky lines, mm -hmm, you know? So, mm -hmm. and, I, and I really like that because, you know, it does mean that, because I think sometimes this type of sort of bold trad climbing gets dubbed as being a bit elitist, but it's not like that at all. If, if you really want to climb something that's as safe as sport climbing, go to Gritstone and climb all the routes that have got cracks. You know, but if you want to do something a little bit more run out, you can. And if you want to do something that's like extremely serious, you can do that as well. But, but what I think worked out quite well was all this was sort of decided back in the kind of mid 80s, like round about when I started climbing. There are a lot of debates, a lot of arguments, which crags should be sport, which crags should be trad. And basically, I think a load of climbers, like opinion leaders, guidebook writers, the federation, they all got together and they thrashed it all out. And it was literally like trading, you know, okay, you can have that crag for sport. We'll have this crag for trad. Wow. And it all just, and it all just got worked out. And, and, you know, there's hardly been any arguments about it since. That's it's like, incredible. Basically, I mean, if you put bolts in grit, you're going to be like in serious trouble. Yeah. It's just yeah. Not, it ain't going to, you know, you're not going to do it. It's more than your life or climbing career is, is worth. You know, it, it's just been decided. And equally, you know, like Lexicon, 
it's on a high mountain crag. And we have a rule in the UK that there's no bolts on high mountain crags. And generally you don't need them because generally the roots are so well protected. Um, sometimes I must say, it'd be nice to have like bolt belays for convenience, but it's, mm. it's not allowed. There are, no, there are no bolts in the mountains. And so the crag where lexicon is, there's a whole bunch of like splitter cracks that you can go do, or there's some roots that are a little bit more run out and then you've got roots like lexicon. But what you can't do is move the goalpost and stick a bolt in something like lexicon just to make it safer for you. And But the thing is, it's like, <laughs> I think if you bolted lexicon, it just wouldn't be special. Yeah, I mean, just yeah. go to Smith Rock and do to bolt or not to be or any number of like, vertical bolted 8B pluses that there are in the world. I think what's special about, well, I shouldn't talk about my own route like this. I'm getting a bit <laughs> big headed, but like, but what, you know, what's hopefully what's like caused a bit of a buzz about lexicon is, is that it's a little bit different. You know, it, it's all the things that you're, that, that, that you saw in that video that, that single it out. Otherwise it just kind of merges into that sea of sameness. Mm. Well, thanks for that. That's an excellent explanation. And I had no idea about the the trading. And uh, that's that makes perfect sense because you do have these very cut and dry, like this is a sport crag, yeah. this is a trad crag. But I, I never knew that backstory. That's really interesting. But also it like they, they obey themes as well. Like, I mean, for example, as I said, all high mountain is trad, you know, whereas like low level limestone outcrop is usually all sport, mm. mm -hmm. you know, it's just, and again, it's done by sort of altitude. It's done by rock type. So, you know, you, you don't get like weird anomalies, you know, it's, it's, um, so it kind of obeys these themes and it, and it's cool. And, 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 um, I mean, I, the, the UK, it's got, we've got so many different rock types that are climbable. I mean, we've, we've even got like slate and all sorts, you know, and, and it's, we've not got any obviously amazing big walls like, you know, Yosemite, but we've got a lot of variety. It's, um, it's each climbing experience in the UK is very different. Yeah. I have a bunch of great listener questions that I got for you and I want to mix in some of them throughout this conversation. And this one uh, feels appropriate right now. This is a question from Alina and I love this. I, <laughs> there's, there's a whole story here, I'm sure. But Alina asked, I love that you turned to ballet as part of your training for lexicon. What other unconventional methods have you tried and have you integrated any of them into your coaching? So I, I love that question, but I think first things first, we need to hear about the ballet. Tell me about using ballet as training for lexicon. Okay, so I got to the point where in spite of really revving up my hangboard routine, really revving up my nutrition campaign, I felt like my finger strength had probably hit a bit of a plateau but it still wasn't quite enough. And there was two moves where I had to high step. And um, in order to high step, you know what it's like to get your foot up. You have to lean back a little bit. Mm -hmm. But I figured if I could, and in order to, if, to lean back, in order to facilitate the step up, you're going to have to hang harder on the hold. You have to pull harder. Mm. So I was approaching this by, like the way we all, the way all climbers approach things, oh, get more finger strength, pull harder. Rah. And it's like, well, no, hang on a minute. Why don't you just keep your hips in closer to the wall so you're not putting as much force through the finger holds and just develop the ability to step right up? And I've got to say, it, it really, really was effective. I mean, wow. it, it really did make all the difference. And uh, it also, this, all, this, this, this happened in lockdown too. And I guess we were all getting real 
you know, cabin fever in lockdown and, and, and looking perhaps for new experiences and also like, you know, social contact online. And so the, the sessions I did with Rosie Mackley were, you know, primarily about improving my agility and leg flexibility so I could step up. Also, it's just fantastic to meet Rosie, learn from her. I mean, as a coach, I learned from her style of tutoring, which was amazing. Also to, you know, the, the feedback that she gave, the, the sharing the experience with the other members of the group. I mean, I, I just can't speak highly enough about it. I mean, if, if only we could do, you know, we all have more time to do things like that all the time. And I do think it's it's really important to to look outside the, the box. And and I guess to go back to the other the aspect of the question, which is where have I used that sort of thing before? Well, I, I mean, really all it was was going about circle because my mother was a, a ballet and, and contemporary dance teacher, although she certainly never taught it to me when I was young and I never did it when I was young. However, when I was fairly like this sort of, not new to coaching, but I'd maybe been coaching like five or 10 years. I, I, I made these, these well, they were DVDs, but now they're, they're just videos that are on YouTube about technique, um, like kind of technique tutorials. Sort of te- these, these films teach things from like how to do a rock over, how to do a, a drop knee, how to do a flag. And I definitely looked beyond the climbing world in order to develop a kind of a, a way of teaching these things. Because prior to that, I mean, you did, there weren't many people like performance coaching and I was looking for sort of information, trying to find out what other people were doing. There was a lot of information around. I mean, we're going back to, you know, around about 2000 now, a lot of training information around, not much information around about how to coach technique. So I, I actually, it, it wasn't my mum, but it was another friend of mine who was a dance teacher called Karen Russell. I went to some of her classes to see how ballet dancers, you know, learn and and, and imprint and ingrain moves. Uh, and also, same with martial arts too. And, you know, of course, I realised that a lot of it was about drilling and repetition in a way that climbers didn't really do because... You know, climbing moves are always varying, you know, and, and I realized that it was really important to try and replicate, like, partly so I could demonstrate these moves, but also so people could practice and learn, you know, like to, to create problems that basically had the same move and repeated them over and over again so you could drill them. And um, so, yeah, I mean, I drew on I drew on other influences back then. Um but I mean, I could go, I don't know, like, how long have we got, Steve? I could go on with this. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think this is uh, a... That's just the ballet and dance side of things. Right. There's other stuff too. I want to dig into the other stuff. I think this is actually a great opportunity to segue into your coaching. Um, but to kind of kick that off, I want to talk about something that we had talked about in our first conversation a few weeks ago, which is, you know, you're, are you 50 years old? Is that right? I'm 51 now. 51, okay. <laughs> oh, happy birthday. Great. Thank you. Um, so yeah, you've, you're 51, you've been climbing for 40 years and you had just mentioned in our first conversation that you feel like you've never been a natural, like you've always had to work very hard at climbing. And I, I would just love to hear a little bit about what you stand for as a climber and coach, you know, like what, how has that influenced your philosophy? Um, well, go ahead. I, I you know, I, I think that's quite a few Top, you know, hear good climbers saying this, and sometimes it's a little bit of false modesty there. But like, you've really got to trust me on this. I mean, 
if I take my eye off the ball, uh, my climbing just drops off a cliff. And, you know, that's happened more than ever this year. I mean, when it comes to the whole like, roller coaster ride of doing projects and peaking, like the, the bigger they are, the harder they fall. And I knew after doing Lexicon that there was going to be a major crash afterwards. And sure enough, I would say that this year is a reminder of like, how low my base level actually is. I mean, if you saw me at the gym now, you'd just say, this guy didn't climb Lexicon, or at least Lexicon really can't be that hard because I just, my climbing comes down like four grades. <laughs> I mean, it, it really does. And, and, but you know, not a lot, I'm, I'm going a little bit off the subject now. I'm talking about, sorry, I'm starting to move into like, a lot of climbers will just operate at a more consistent level because they don't like those highs and lows and those fluctuations. But I've realized I can get more out of myself by aiming for a peak and then, you know, coming down from that peak and aiming for the next one. But back to the original question, I mean, I guess this all stems from when I first got into climbing. And I, I mean, at school, I didn't enjoy sport. Was the, I was the kind of kid slightly overweight kid who didn't get picked for any of the teams um but then when my dad took me to the there's some little um sandstone outcrops just south of london and just these really small like modest sort of top roping crags and and i just i loved i just it was the first touch of the rock it was like some sort of electric shock you know it, i just was per, i felt like permanently charged with it and I, it was just so many things. It was it was the the fact that it was non-competitive. It was non-judgmental. It just felt good. To, and and I, I and I but I just I became a red pointer, like a project climber, right from the start because I couldn't really get up anything. I just was I was so inept at it. And I remember having these like three or four day sieges to get up things that were given like you know less than French four plus you know, on a top rope and, and they were so easy. They weren't even graded, but I just didn't care. I just, I just loved like, just, I mean, I had no technique. I had no strength. I had no, but, but I just, I was just throwing myself, you know, totally like uh, uh, with this sort of willful abandon at these bits of rock and, you know, and, uh, and, and I very quickly kind of just became obsessed with it and started reading all the magazines and like all the top climbers, you know, from the UK and the States and France, they all became my heroes. I had pictures of them all over my bedroom wall. I was just a total obsessive climbing geek, but never had the slightest, like, never had my sights set on any hard grades because I was so, so, the, the, the improvements I made were so slow and so incremental that they weren't even, you know, by my mid-teens, I was still climbing pretty modest grades and, and just didn't think about climbing hard i mean it wasn't until i moved to sheffield and went to sheffield university and i started like you know you they say like you know be careful about meeting your heroes but for me like meeting climbers like ben moon and jerry moffat and watching them and seeing what they did and a couple of like climbers were really influential in that period for me like sort of past because there was no information flow back then there was this mm. was all pre-internet we're talking like you know, late 80s, early 90s. No one was writing training articles for magazines. I'm not even sure if Eric Horst's first book was out. There was literally no information. So 
the only way you could learn was for me was to move from London to go to Sheffield and hope that I would bump into the top climbers. And that was what happened. Wow. And there was a climber called Mark Pretty, Zippy, who, who climbed with Moon and Moffat. We see Moon and Moffat were just kind of doing their thing. They weren't so much thinking about like sharing any info, but this guy, Mark <laughs> Pretty, come over to me and say, oh, you know, what's this you're working on? And oh, have you thought about doing it this way? And, you know, what training are you doing? And I was like, oh, I'm doing loads of weight training, you know, I'm, I'm to get strong. And he was like, hmm, weight training. Ah. You know, he's like, do you boulder? I was like, you know, what's, what's bouldering? <laughs> uh, all this, this sort of thing. And, and, and so, I, you know, and, and so it all started. And, and, um, but I kind of then made some really big, like, not, no, no, I, did, I didn't make big. I, I think probably started making slightly more noticeable improvements. And at that stage, and then I kind of got up to the point where I, I climbed my first AA. Um, in fact, no, I did. I just, things suddenly took off. Climbed my first AA when I was like 18. And then I started writing training articles because I just thought I, I had so much, in, like I, I had learned so many things that, that immediately benefited my climbing and made someone who never thought they were going to climb hard. It made, made them, it made them climb hard. And I thought, well, this is useful stuff. People are going to be interested in this. And, and, I, and I started writing training articles. And then from there, people started asking me for coaching. And I, and I sort of went, well, you know, I, 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 I don't know. I'm not, who's a coach? Like, can climbing be coached? There, there were no climbing coaches. There was, you know, what we called instructors, which were, you know, generally thought of as people who taught you how to belay and tie in. But in terms of anyone who could like actually help you improve, there was there weren't any coaches. So I almost got like bullied into it by a few people who said, "Well, okay." And I said, "I'm not going to take anybody. I'm not going to take anyone's money for this." But I'll if you're asking me for a few tips, I'll have a go. And it all kind of started off like that. And uh, and I, I kind of fell in love with it as well. And you know, because I noticed that the tips I was passing on were helping people to improve and, 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 and it was really very rewarding, but it also had this fantastic effect of taking the pressure off my own climbing a little bit, because I'm not just thinking about me and my, you know, whether I'm getting strong or not, or whether I'm achieving my next grade, you know, it's like, I'm getting, I'm, I'm, I'm really getting the psych off back off these people who I'm, who I'm coaching. And, and so over the years, I think it's been a really, a really successful combination for me in terms of my motivation. Because if there's ever a period where, let's say, you know, because we, we can't be, you know, we can't be smashing it all the time, that there has to be some periods when, you know, things aren't, aren't going so well. But that might just coincide with a period where a bunch of clients are smashing it. So there's always like, there's always some good stuff going on, you know. Um, Sorry for the long answer. Have I gone off on a bit of a tangent? No, that's no. The, I mean, this is exactly why I was so excited to talk to you because, you know, I've had a lot of high performers on the show, and when you're talking to like a elite professional climber, one of the best, especially when they you know started as kids and had a coach and a team and all these modern things that that a lot of these yeah. people have, as insightful as many of them are, like there's just some level of self-awareness, not self-awareness. Um, there's a level of relatability that they're never, never going to have to someone like me or someone like whoever is out there listening right now, you know, but, but you climbing's always been hard. It's always been a struggle for you. And yet you've managed to 
claw your way up to 14C, which is so inspiring to me. And, you, you know, you've climbed some of your hardest stuff in your late 40s. And then combining that with 25 years of coaching experience or however long, I'm sure that you have so many insights to share and so many yeah. ideas and tips to pass on to people listening that go beyond just the conventional wisdom, right? Like we all know that like doing some sort of finger training is probably going to help our climbing if that's not already a massive strength of ours. But yeah, we've already talked about ballet. I mean, I'm really curious what some of the other, like if you have anything, any other ideas in your mind that are like kind of categorically huge opportunities for improvement as climbers that people just aren't spending enough time thinking about or putting enough energy into. Do any things like that come to mind? I feel like I'm going to, I'm going to because we could talk for probably a week about this, <laughs> I've probably got to start in, like, in, in case people are starting to like, they need to switch off this podcast and get on with their day and they're saying come on Gresham give us your best shot like <laughs> I haven't got much time the main thing that happens when I coach people and this has been happening for 25-30 years is that when you say to someone you can do that I believe you can and it's something that they didn't believe that they could do themselves but you say well I've looked at you on this other route or on this other boulder problem I've seen your footwork. I've seen the way you read the route. I've seen the way you move. I've looked at your strength on the hangboard. I've seen you do this. I've seen you do that. So to me, it's actually logical that you'll now go and do this next route, this, this thing that you, well, I wouldn't say this, but they, this thing that they don't seem to believe that they can do. And as soon as you implant that motivation into this person, they go and do it. Hmm. I had two coaching sessions like that last week. I just, well, one yesterday. This guy says to me, you know, V6 is pretty much my limit. He did three V6s in the session. I'm like, <laughs> you know, he nearly flashed one of them. It's like, you're telling me V6 is your limit. You can climb V9. Mm. You know, this, this happens all the time. And I think that people don't realize how hard they can climb. And I think a lot of it comes down to initially goal setting. I think that, that a lot of climbers struggle to set goals and sometimes I do think that the goal of just climbing better isn't enough. Mm. I think you need to look, you need to go deeper than that and, and you need to connect yourself to climbs that are really meaning for you, meaningful for you. I think that's very important. But then I think when push comes to shove that, yeah, okay, strength's important, technique's very important, um, tactical approach is very important, mindset we know is important, but like what aspect of mindset is the most important? the most important aspect of mindset is finishing game finishing game finish. you have to finish this thing that you've started hmm. we go on instagram and it's a wash with here's me on my project yeah i've done all the moves oh yeah i got some good links links today I'm, I'm doing quite well but when you look at the climbers who've succeeded the ones who've done really well they're the ones who finished what they've started it's like a diy project like oh, i'm going to paint the lounge oh i'm going to look at the colors oh we could do it this color oh that's a beaut we could, oh, you know, put. but like to finish this project is always the hard part because it just the last part is the dirty part. A friend of mine, Neil Mawson, has this like iconic quote that the time when you're most likely to give up is the time when you're most likely to do it. And so a lot of people just don't get it over the finishing line. Mm. That's the important thing. And if you 
work on your ability. You see that as an aspect of your climbing performance, like you know your 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 finger, your half crimp strength, or or your endur- or your endurance, or whatever. Think of your finishing game as a thing, and and ask yourself what it's like, and ask yourself if you're good at it, and if you're not, make yourself finish things. And we will be right back. This episode is brought to you by Frictitious Climbing. Today, I want to tell you about two of my favorite products from Frictitious. First up is the Easy Board. That's E-Z board. The Easy Board is hands down the most versatile hangboard I have ever seen. It's portable, meaning you can take it to the crag, hang it from a tree or from a bolt at the sport cliff. But what makes the Easy Board unique is that it comes with a mounting plate that allows it to be used as a traditional hangboard. In just a few seconds, you can mount it above your doorway at home in any of four different orientations and use it just like a regular hangboard. It's light, it's compact, and it covers all your bases. Secondly, I wanna talk about the hangboard doorway mount. The hangboard doorway mount is perfect for climbers who don't have a great spot for a hangboard or who can't drill into their wall at home. It's a great way to train in your home or apartment, and you can even have Frictitious install one of their hangboards for you, so when it arrives, you can be up and training in minutes. Head over to frictitiousclimbing.com and use code NUGGET at checkout for free shipping on your order. That's frictitiousclimbing.com. Use code NUGGET at checkout for free shipping. Train, solve, climb with Frictitious Climbing. This episode is also brought to you by Petzl. I have been using Petzl equipment for more than a decade, and today I want to talk about quick draws. Rock climbing is hard, but clipping shouldn't be. Whether you're on-siding, red-pointing, or just warming up, the last thing you want to be struggling with is clipping your quick draws. That's why in 1991, Petzl introduced the Spirit Quick Draw. They set out to build the best clipping carabiner on the market, and 30 years later, you can still find Spirit Express Quick Draws hanging on the hardest routes in the world. And these are my personal favorite quick draws, and they're the ones that I leave hanging on my own projects because I love how they feel. Petzl makes some of the most clippable and durable carabiners on the market. Each Petzl carabiner design is tested to ensure that it can withstand 100,000 open and close cycles. That is one hell of a lot of clips. So here's the deal. Whether you're climbing 510 or 514, you deserve a carabiner that is clippable, durable, and affordable. Check out Petzl's entire lineup of carabiners and quick draws at your local retailer or online at petzl.com. Again, shop for Petzl carabiners and quick draws at your local climbing shop or online at petzl.com. Experience the difference with Petzl. And now back to the show. Wow. Thanks, man. That's a hell of a nugget right there. Um, I've never heard anyone else talk about that. And it, it immediately resonates. It immediately resonates with myself. And I've seen it so much too in other people. You know, we just we just open up all these difficult, ambitious, dreamy things and um, mm. and don't see them through. And it's interesting, you were talking about goal setting, and I just wanted to share a thought that came to mind because I've always been a goal setter, but I've realized just in the last couple of years that I, it, it just kind of clicked that it's going to be really helpful and already has been really helpful for me to get a lot more granular with my goals, you know, because I was the type of person that was like, I want to climb 514C someday. I want to climb V13, maybe V14 someday. 
well, that's all well and good, you know, and I have so far to go. It's like, well, just keep punching the clock, get stronger, get stronger, get stronger. Like you'll thank yourself in five years, whatever. But I've had all these conversations on the show and, and time and time again, I see, I see someone else get obsessed and get so inspired by a very specific climb that they want to do that they, you know, they raise themselves up to the level of that climb so much quicker than I'm progressing at just generally trying to get better. And that's been a shift for me in the last couple of years is like, no, I want to do this specific 514 in St. George this fall. And I want to do this specific V12 in Waco this winter. Like those are, I'm already thinking about those. I already know what the limiting factors are. I know what I need to train. I'm kind of mm -hmm. like starting to organize my whole life towards these goals. And I know that they're not going to, you know, focusing on these two specific climbs are not going to make me the most well-rounded climber that I would ever be, but that doesn't matter. Like it's going to help me forward. And then it, when I reach these goals, I can pick something new that'll focus me, you know, um, necessitate focusing on slightly different weaknesses and things like that. And you just kind of build up these different skills over time. I mean, you, you touched upon another really, really important thing. And, and that's, um, and when I, sorry, when I said finishing game, I was of course talking more about project climbing. I think the, the climber who wishes to be a, a, a an all-round on-site climber, it's a slightly different conversation, but I guess I've always been more focused on projects. So, so, that, so that's why I said what I said. But now what, what you said leads me into another thing, which I think is critical. And you, you mentioned those two climbs and you've tried them and you, you, you so you, you've actually, you've tried them. So you know, yeah. mm -hmm. like what, what you need to do in your training to, to bring yourself up, up to the standard. The problem when often when we do this is that we listen with a bit of a filter and instead of really really being neutral and impassive and, and asking ourselves what is this climb actually asking us to do we much prefer to say i think this climb's asking me to do this because that's the bit that i actually want to do in my training mm. it's just like going back to lexicon you know it's got really really small crimps on it so on at a first glance you think well i've just got to improve my crimp strength and my power endurance on gently overhanging walls but you know you don't immediately think i've got to work on my step up or my flexibility you know and so we listen with a little bit of a filter because we're all like this with training we're notorious for it we all there's the bits of training that we love to do that we always keep doing you know and and then there are the things that we don't do for whatever reason because we're a human you know and so i've realized that you you have to genuinely do what this climb is asking you to do and not what you think it's asking you know, what not what you would like it to ask you to do it, if mm. you see what i mean yeah um that's if it's really hard for you anyway and each climb um how to say this you i i feel like um stuff has come out of each hard project that i wasn't expecting you know and you go oh wow it was about this when you know when i I originally thought it was about that, you know, and that's, that's happened to me a bunch of times. So I think you get better at this, you know, about diagnosing, you know, the, the requirements of the project relative to the skills that you have. Mm. Um, yeah. And of course we're mixing from such a diverse palette here, aren't we? You know, it's, there's all the physical stuff, there's all the technical stuff, then there's all the conditions and tactical type stuff. There's so many things that come into it, you know, really with my, the trad route that I did before lexicon, final score actually 
it boiled down to if I had to write a list of the 10 most important things, the thing at the very top of the page was just making sure I was there on the right conditions day. Mm. And, you know, I walked away from that route so many times, so many times when I was match fit, everything else was right. I was recovered. My skin was good. I had a B layer. I went there. The conditions weren't right. And I just knew I had to get the right day and I got the, and then I got the right day and I did it. Mm. So it was basically came down to that. And, and, each time it will usually come down to something a bit different. I love that. Yeah. But the edit, you know, that, that list is a, is a useful list. You know, I'm sure we all do this, but you know, don't just make the list, prioritize it. What, what's the thing, what's the most important thing you need to do for this project, put that at the top. And then what comes second, what comes third? I mean, you're probably not going to be able to quite work it out in such a, such a sort of linear fashion, but, but you can have a go. And I think even the process of trying to prioritize that list is important. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's great. I mean, as much as I talk about performance and training on this podcast, like that's, yeah, the, the tactics and strategy and conditions thing is something that is absolutely a skill that you can practice every single time you go climbing. And I see, you know, because I travel and go to a lot of different crags and stuff, and this usually happens at the... I hope I'm not offensive, offending anyone by, by saying this, but like the intermediate crags, you know, when you go to a crag that has a lot of, um, this is going to piss someone off, <laughs> whatever, 511, 512, 513, and there's always someone trying their first 12A or their first 13A, right? That's really common. And I see this a lot where someone's thinking that they need to get stronger, they need to train better, they need to project the thing more, whatever it is. But I'm just sitting there like, man, if you showed up when the route was actually in the shade instead of in the sun and did a proper warm up and rested longer between your tries, you would have done it already. You know, it's just, it can be those really simple things sometimes that get missed. The tactical and psychological stuff is huge. And again, it, it, I mean, it is surely it's, it's not spoken about as much. I mean, the, there's just so much about training at the moment. Um, and there's, and there's a lot more out there now about technique than there used to be, but I think there's still, it's it's really hard to to develop your tactical game without you know without going climbing all the time and mm. it's like i i've been on in the last six months i've been on four athlete meets with like top internationals on the um can i mention brands i can mention i can yeah, mention sure. brands can't i yeah like uh so for, i work with pets on la sportiva and i've been on two international athlete meets with the and they basically I, i've got total imposter syndrome because there was like 15 or so other athletes and they all climb 9a and above and some of them climb 9b and and you'll know who most of they are most of them are i'm not going to start name dropping but think of the world's best climbers and that's who i'm talking about and you talk to these people and increasingly you sort of say well what do you do for training and they say well we just go climbing yeah but what else and what about actual training well no we just go climbing hmm. you know and i started you know bringing up sort of trying to get into some more slightly more sort of technical chats about like energy systems and this sort of thing, which the, the Brits are certainly quite obsessed with at the moment. And um, there's just, there's just not an appetite for it. A lot of them are just like, well, I'm not, you know, they, I just don't take it to that sort of level. I just, just go out and try high, hard projects. That's fascinating. Actually, even at a nine B level, you see that. Yeah, totally. I mean, uh, you know, maybe the, some of them are playing a bit, playing it a bit cool, but I also think, um, 
some of them aren't and that and in fact i know some of them aren't and, mm. and you know this is all very well because these guys you know a lot of them are going to be paid to climb full time so they can do that and i think the whole training conversation comes back to the average person who has to go to work who lives in a city who doesn't live near to the crag right but they want to keep the dream alive they want to burn the torch and so increasingly now we're coming back to this sort of um this approach of training so that you're going to like train and train and train so you're going to find your project easy unfortunately it's a it's a false prophecy um yeah okay it's an advantage to live near to a crag and to do more climbing you you, you are just slightly disadvantaged if you live further away from the crag and you will have to you know, bank more on this approach of, of training well and, uh, you know, and training effectively so that you can raise your level, but still don't think that you're going to go out and send your project easily. Cause I've noticed that this is where so many people who are like lost in this whole like, headspace of training, this is where they're going wrong because they, they, they think it's a ticket to an easy time. Mm. It's, it's just not, you know, it, it's right. still going to dirty. It's going to get messy for you out there on the crag. Mm. You're going to go through doubt you're going to go through you know insecurity you're going to go you're going to feel bored you're going to want to move on to the next thing you're going to you're going to get frustrated these things are never going to go away this is part of it you can't will you can't will these things away you've still got to want your project to be hard you've got to you've got to embrace that you've got to you've got to thrive on that don't think that you can train that away Mm. i love that and the funny irony is that you know, even if it does work for someone and they train, 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 and then they go crush their project, I mean, what are they going to do next? They're just going to pick a harder project and then they're going to have the experience well, exactly. that, you're just, <laughs> that you're just talking about. So, yeah, you, yeah. You, you might do that exactly, but the project won't be, yeah, you might go, you might train and go out and find your project easy, but if you did, it probably wasn't very hard. Right. You know, <laughs> so, so exactly. Right. Exactly. You know, you can't will away all those things that we have to go through when we're out on the crag climbing our limit don't will those things away don't think you can train those things away you know just do your best to maximize your time on the crag and understand that when you get out there the training is once you're actually there it's it's largely irrelevant how you trained it's about keeping your shit together on the day mm. you know and being aware of your environment and, and, and looking at how the conditions change and, and, and seeing how you're, how you feel on your warmups and, and, and choosing the, you know, choosing your warmups carefully and the amount of time that you take in between them. And, you know, like when you bolt to bolt your, your route, like, you know, which sections you focus on and which links you decide to do and how long you then rest and, 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 you know, this is the important stuff. And and what happens, I think, one of the advantages, I suppose, of having been climbing a long time is, you know, pattern recognition. You know, you can recognize patterns in yourself and you can look back and you can see that there were many times when you went out and you weren't actually feeling strong. You know, I mean, I can think of key projects that I sent for some weird, like not not actually for a weird reason. I'll I'll get to the reason in a minute. But I sent the project when my benchmark scores had dipped and I wasn't feeling strong. And I went to the crag feeling really down about the whole thing. Like, what's the point even being here? I was so weak on the on my board. I was so weak on the hangboard. This is a joke, you know. Like, I, what am I even doing? 
and then you 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 go down the route in a bit of a sulk, you know, or um, up. This was a, a deep water solo actually, so I had to add in from the top. I'm thinking about one in my head, but maybe if it's a sport route, you go you bolt to bolt the route. But because you're feeling a bit, a bit weak, you find a little a little drop knee, or you find a knee bar. You 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 swap hands on a hold when you hadn't planned to, and suddenly you you unlock something, and a little bit of magic happens, and then you go and do the route. Whereas if you're feeling like super strong, you'd probably just go and you just pull on the holds like super hard the way you always did. You know, so like weakness can be a strength. Mm. Um, and, and, and so also, you know, this, this sort of, again, like feeds into the conversation about the whole, like the, 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 the kind of inherent, um, woolliness, grayness of the mind game, you know, like, trying to think that you have to get yourself into the right headspace for the send again is another another false prophecy and you know dave mcleod famously like championed this way of thinking that it's a mistake to think that you have to have this like perfect positive mindset on the day because looking back i can think when i sent roots when i felt really really underconfident and i send or i felt a bit scared and i sent or i felt extremely nervous and i sent or i felt angry and pissed off and bored and I send <laughs> or I can think of times when I felt like more closer to what you would call this sort of so-called ideal headspace yeah I was calm I was relaxed I was positive I was this you know it almost throws the whole debate out of court because the problem isn't the mindset that you're in the problem is convincing yourself that you're in the wrong mindset mm. you have to just almost like detach from it like have a bit of an outer body experience and go like just, just climb, just climb, execution, focus, you know, get the foothold, stand on it in the right place, get the next handhold, get the thumb catch, chalk up here, now into the, you know, and you just execution, game, execution, you know, because otherwise the mind just takes you out. Yeah, man, I, I so relate to that. I think that is the the common denominator because I, I had a couple of years where I really tried to work on positive thinking and embrace a more confident mindset going into projects. And there was just zero correlation with managing to do that and then succeeding. But the common theme there is that whenever I did send, it was like when I would, would drop back to that sort of mind space that you just described, where it's like, we'll just see what happens, you know, just like try to get to the next bolt and just try to get as much back there as you can. Just try to get to that next rest, yeah. you know? Um, and sometimes it's positive. Sometimes it's really pessimistic. And uh, I mean, my two, yeah, my two hardest climbs, I couldn't have had a more kind of different mindset, but they both. There you go. There you right, go. exactly. Yeah, yeah it's, it's so, fascinating. So how, so how do you make sense of that answer? You just don't, you just climb. Mm, I love so, that. Yeah, like as Dave, as McLeod said, you know, hard routes have been climbed in every conceivable mindset. <laughs> so, so if you get yourself, if you get it right, if you feel like you're in the, not in the mindset on the day that you hope to be in, don't worry about it. You could still send, but really it's the whole, you know, the biggest one is, is that one when you say when the pressure's off, isn't it? You've had your three big red points. You're done now. You spend, but you need to get your quick draws back. So you're not going for a red point. You're just going to get a quick draws back and you send. I mean, <laughs> How many times has that happened? Right. I mean, we can tell hundreds of stories like that. You know? 
Well, that's great, man. Um, I do want to ask you a couple training questions because I got some training questions from listeners and feel free. I mean, we don't have to focus on physical stuff here. You can draw on any number of things um, for these answers. But I like this question from Doug. Doug asked, since you have been involved in training for climbing for multiple decades now, is there anything that stands out as being very popular and effective back when you started getting involved in training, but seems overlooked now? Or vice versa, is there anything that is very popular and effective these days that seems like it was overlooked back then? So maybe let's tackle things that were working really well back in the 80s that are just getting overlooked these days. Does anything come to mind? Right. I think the 80s were pretty disastrous. <laughs> I, I, I mean, all the top climbers were having elbow surgery and shoulder surgery, and that was considered normal. Hmm. So I really don't think we can look to that. You know, there was a lot of crimping on small, there was a lot of locking off, you know, like really stuff that was super, super tendon intensive. I, I don't think we can pick much out of the 80s. Why do you think that is? Just too much of the high intensity, same sort of training or? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Okay. I mean, now gyms, you know, we have a whole variety of different types of grip. And so we're using the fingers, you know, and, and in fact, the whole body in a very, in a you know, whole variety of different ways. Whereas it was these very linear, very repetitive movements. You were gripping the same, everything was full crimped and everything was deep lock and, mm. you know, often traversing on vertical walls. So it's like hips parallel, you're not twisting in, it's, you know, it's all in one plane. And I mean, there was stuff like the <laughs> God rest his soul because he's a hero of mine, but the, the backer ladder, I mean, that was mm. a, a torture. That was a, you know, like effectively like a, a, a wire or a rope ladder that was tensioned at 45 degrees and you like lock off on one arm and reach for the next rung and then lock off on one, you know, these things absolutely that destroyed the elbows of all the top climbers from that particular era. And I mean, it was, it was just comedy really, you know, and, and so much has happened from the perspective of injury prevention. I mean, I know you were keen to talk about injury prevention, Steve. Should we save this one and pick it up later and keep it more focused on training or should we flick into that here? I mean, what do you want? Um, yeah, sure. We can, we can go on an injury prevention tangent. That sounds great. Well, because it, because it's, they're, they're, I mean, they're so, they're so, they're so com inherently combined, aren't they? Like, mm. you know, people tend to think, oh, injury prevention, that's a little bore. I've got to do loads of like repetitive exercises that, that aren't actually going to make me a better climber. But if they're stopping you getting injured and enabling you to carry on training, then they are going to make you a better climber. And the thing is also that some of the modern sort of injury prevention exercises, do actually have a two-pronged effect and actually make you better at climbing as well. This is all the stuff we didn't. So maybe I'm answering the second question before I'm answering the first question. What we're doing now, which we weren't doing, things like you know using a forearm extensor trainer. You know, I'm not talking here about one of these grip squeezes that's working the flexor tendons. I'm talking about something that's opening the fingers out using the extensor muscles. You might yeah. Like, what use is that? I've seen Climbing like Iron Man, rhythm. Iron Mind bands, like those thick rubber bands, basically, and you're like extending your fingers. That's yeah. it. That's yeah. it. So, okay, a lot of the common climbing injuries, fingers and elbows, are caused by this like muscular imbalance, like having very strong flexor tendons. You know, no surprise because we use them all the time in climbing, and having really weak extensors because we never use them at all. I was put onto one of these um, forearm extensor trainers you know, 10, 15 years ago by a couple of good friends, pro climbers. 
I'd always had elbow tendonitis. I mean, in my early 20s, I had it. I got it again in my late 20s. I got it again in my early 30s. It blighted my climbing. It was the biggest, you know, I, I would, and, and also when I first got elbow tendonitis, it was in the days when we didn't really know about rehab. And so I was like resting them a lot, not, not rehabbing them properly. So I spent so much time out. Anyway, I got hold of one of these forearm extensor trainers within two weeks of not even being particularly like strict with my protocols. I was just like pumping away on this thing. But the crucial thing was I wasn't doing endurance sets with it. I was doing strength sets. So mm. I was doing like anything between sort of eight and 15 reps, like with high resistance, building up strength in the extensor tendons. My elbows, uh, they'd always felt tweaky and on the brink. And they always used to kind of like stop me in training sessions. I always used to like back off through fear of elbow tendonitis. Here I was at the age of 40 and my elbows felt better than they'd ever felt within two weeks. Wow. And they have done ever since. And I don't even use these devices all the time. I probably should, but like I, I kind of go through phases of being more keen with them and then phases of forgetting to use them. But the, the net effect is that I can take a pinch and lock it down to my waist, which is something that I was never able to do in my 20s because of elbow pain. Mm. So there's one thing. And the, and the other thing, of course, is that, and I don't have the um, research evidence to back this up, but I can say this anecdotally because I've recommended these devices to hundreds of people over the years and in the last 10 years. And so many have said to me that their finger strength, like as in, in a climbing sense, their finger strength has also improved you know, their ability to, to dead hang or, you know, use a half crimp with, with greater weight seem to coincide with them starting to use these extensor trainers. And, and, and why would that be? I can only conclude this because when you, the, the body won't actually allow like grotesque strength imbalances to develop. So in other words, if you never train your extensors, eventually what happens is your flexors just stop. They stop improving and stop responding. But if you start training your extensors, you're working on the ratio and then your flexors start improving. So it almost like can have the effect for, especially for old times like me, you've been training finger strength, their flexors all their life. You start training your extensors and then suddenly your flexors start coming on. And this, this happened to me and this has happened to so many people who I've coached. One, you know, these little rubber gadgets, you're going to spend 30 bucks on them. It's like totally game changing. Um, always going to be someone's going to pop up and go, oh, I used them. They were rubbish. And Gresham, right. that's not what he's talking about. Right, right. You know, that's the world of coaching. If you don't want to use this thing, that's fine. Fill your boots. But for me, <laughs> these things are, are massive. And I, can, I could bury you in emails, people getting back to me saying the same thing. That's a powerful sell. I mean, that that's enough to get me to commit to using them more regularly and see what happens at least. And um, I'll keep mm -hmm. people posted. But do you have a favorite brand or, or tool that you like to to recommend to people? Well, there's a lot of good ones. I mean, I use the, the power fingers. I'm, I'm not sponsored by them. I don't work with them at all. So I'm not trying to sell you something here. I use the power fingers, but I mean, other brands exist. But I mean, another classic example is like, oh my word, I mean, suspension you know, rings trx call them what you want like which just didn't exist in, in my era you know and in a way i'm like pretty proud that i got up to climbing like sort of 8b plus without any of this type of stuff which makes such a massive difference because again you know rings suspension straps if you do like because we always knew that we were supposed to do push-ups you know to, to work on again the antagonist the chest 
the triceps, but press ups are just so boring, aren't they? Who wants to do them? You know, and you know, as a result of not doing them again, you've got like these climbers with you can develop quite a freakish physique as a result of only just working on the the kinetic chain that that's involved in pulling rather than the kinetic chain that's involved in pushing. You start working on a bit of push-up strength, it can really balance you out. You feel more more robust. But if you do that stuff on the rings, you're also giving your core a massive hit. You're just working all the sort of stabilizing muscles, the synergists that fire up and just help to keep your body like really taut and like really help you to maintain stable posture. You build like really strong shoulders and you just get on steep stuff and you just feel more in control of your body. So it's having an antagonist effect, but it's also feeding into your climbing directly. And yeah, I mean, it's it, stuff, stuff like this didn't exist. I, I can't imagine... I can't believe like almost like how did we survive without that stuff? And, you know, we could go off on a conversation about, yeah, well maybe weights can do the same, but I did a lot of weights when I was young and they did not sort me out Hmm. at all. And, you know, I know it comes down to protocols and there are certain exercises that are better than others and so on and so forth. But the net effect for me as a result, and it depends on the physique, it depends on the protocol, but I mean, I built a lot of bulky, unwanted muscle as a result of training weights and just generally felt a lot more kind of clunky. Whereas for me, there's something about using, you know, rings and the TRX. I just feel really sharp and explosive and coordinated as a result of using them. Um, so that's, a, you know, that, that's they're, they're really, for me, really significant. What are some favorite exercises that are staples for you on the rings or TRX? So uh, um, a, a push-up, uh, which you know many will find difficult, and you can do these on your knees if you're a first-timer. And in fact, if you're new to them, I strongly advise that you do do them on your knees. You can do uh, like um, eyes, Ys, and Ts. So a T is when you bring your arms out to the side to make your body into like a cross. The Y is when you bring your arms up at 45 degrees. And then the, the eye is when you bring your, your arms out in front of you, above your head. And you do these like starting from a from plank position. Um, yeah, I mean, I just felt like I always felt up to the point when I discovered the rings that I was just basically like a, a climber who was just winging it. And I was not an athlete. I was not robust. My physique was not resilient. It was just waiting for the next thing to go twang. And that's what used to happen. You know, it was like, it was just, you just when you're getting up to your level just when you're thinking all right let's push on something would knock you back and it was like a three or four or five year cycle but it would be something it would be a finger tendon it would be a shoulder it'd be an elbow and this was like my climbing between the age of sort of 18 and 35 and then you know i started using a forearm extensor trainer i started using the rings and i started eating properly and i've never been injured since wow i haven't been injured since i was 35 Wow. Apart from like stupid stuff like helping my, my mother-in-law dig in the garden, you know, <laughs> like, like, like throwing my kids around or something stupid that's got nothing to do with climbing, but I have not had a climbing injury in, you know, since I was 35. Wow. I want to ask a couple more pointed questions about the extensors and then the rings. Um, first off with the extensors, how do you integrate that into your week? Are you just doing them when you're sitting at your desk randomly or is this like... That, in- that's a difficult thing. And it's yeah. just, you know, it's 
it's having them on hand because if you find a convenient moment to do them, you usually haven't got them with you. And I think it's worth, God, I really do sound like I'm selling these products and I promise you I don't work for these companies, <laughs> companies but it's actually worth getting two or three sets of these things so that you can leave one like in your workspace at, at where you are at work. You can leave like one, I don't know, in a handy place, like where you keep your keys at home and then another like on your bedside table so that they're always there. Otherwise you just like won't use them or, mm. or like in the, in your the zipped top pocket of your bag that you take to the gym, it's unlikely that you're going to finish the climbing session. Like you're going to go down to the wire on a climbing session and then you're going to sit for another 10 minutes at the end doing these forearm extensions. You're probably not. You're just going to want to go home and eat your dinner. And, and, you know, so it usually points towards using these things on rest days. But to be honest, it doesn't really matter when, as long as you just fit them into your routine and do them. And, and let's say as a happy staple average, just try and use them three times a week. Mm. But um, sorry to name drop, but like, I mean, I, I had a really like fascinating chat with, with Adam Andre about training a while ago. And he told me the amount of training that he was doing when he started working with Patchy. And I was like, my, my goodness, like, you know, that's an insane amount of training. Like, you know, I know that obviously someone like Adam is, is genetically very gifted and he, he can take a lot of training, but nonetheless, I was pretty shocked. And he said, yeah, but I'm always working to the two thirds and a third rule, which was like two thirds climbing training and a third antagonist training. So in other words, the more climbing training he wow. did, more time he spent doing antagonist training to balance the books. And, you know, he, he wasn't injured at all, but he was, he was really, really ramping up the antagonist work. So look, there's a lot of different people listening to this. Someone who climbs twice a week doesn't have to do a load of antagonist training, but someone who climbs five times a week does, mm. you know, just, just, just go with, maybe go with that two thirds and a third type rule or three quarters and a quarter. But, you know, if you're just like, if you push your climbing pretty hard, you should try and use these things like three times a week, you know, for 15, 20 minutes. Yeah, it's probably worth reiterating too that you focus on strength with them rather because it's so common to just grab a light one and like do it for a minute until your forearms are burning. So the light ones have always existed. They're nothing new. Climbers had those in the late, in the 90s, but they were so light that you could pump out like 100 reps on this thing and you just get bored. It's like, what am I, why am I even doing this? No, the key is to work. I mean, that, to be fair, might you know would would in many cases have quite a good rehabilitative effect we could get into another conversation but i would suggest that overwhelmingly the priority with these things is to train strength with them like imagine you're doing a boulder problem with your forearm extensors you know like a like an eight move like crush fest you know mm -hmm. just like get them as like build if you're if you're not used to them if you've never used them before start off more gently and do like easy sets of like 20 reps or so but once you've built a bit of a base then you want to start doing sets of eight repetitions and and usually like there's di again there's different protocols but usually you like hold them out for like three or four seconds and then release them hold them out for three or four seconds and then release them do like anything between six and 12 reps three sets of that and you're good three times a week cool yeah that's I'm very intrigued. I'll put some links to Power Fingers and um, and some other products in the show notes. I really like uh, Iron Mind as a company. That's a grip focused company, and they have these. They basically just look like mm -hmm. those thick rubber bands that you see wrapped around like asparagus at the grocery yeah. store or something, but they're just beefier. Um, I like those ones as well. And one other thing I was going to say is I've <laughs> when I have used these in the past, one thing that actually works quite well. 
I don't know if I should be recommending this, but um, I would keep them in the little cubby next to my driver's seat in my car and actually just like oh. pump out reps when I was driving. And, you know, like your fingers are... Be careful, everyone. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. But, you know, if, yeah. if something happens, you can grab your steering wheel with these things on your hand. It's totally doable. Um, but yeah. <laughs> that was, everybody, that was Steve's recommendation. Right, 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 right. <laughs> don't, don't get in accidents, please. But you know, it's, 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 it's like anything now in coaching, it's controversial. There'll be people going out there saying that doesn't work and blah, blah, blah. you know, everybody's entitled to their opinion. <laughs> right. Right. So yeah, then going back to the rings, you mentioned push-ups, eyes, Y's and T's. I'm curious, any other exercises that you like and how do you integrate those into your, your climbing training? Those are the main ones. Now, we know how training junkies love to do exercises. I mean, you go on TRX's website and they'll show you 100 exercises that you can do on these straps. Let's remember here that the purpose here is to, is to be a climber. You know, you don't need to get carried away. And, and one thing that really kind of amused me a little bit was when obviously climbing boomed at the start of the century, all the gyms started springing up everywhere. And like the whole kind of like strength conditioning, like crew got into climbing. And suddenly it's like, we're going to tell you a hundred different exercises that you can do. They're going to make you a better climber. It's like, uh, okay, there's not really enough hours in the day. And I do kind of come back to all these like nine, a plus nine B climbers who I've been spending quite a bit of time with recently, most of whom just go climbing, you know, and right. they do like a minimum amount of antagonist stuff to stop themselves getting broken. You know, like you don't want to overdo this stuff. I, I, I am a firm believer that I've worked with, obviously so many with coaching, you know, you work with, um, there's so many different like personality profiles and I've worked with a lot of gym junkies over the years who just want to do loads and loads of weight training and supportive stuff. And as a result, they're just not climbing enough. Mm. And also they might even be just gen generally overexerting themselves, depleting, you know, depleting glycogen stores, um, like placing a lot more emphasis on recovery, poaching energy from climbing sessions. I think you've got to really cherry pick this stuff, you know? And so those exercises that I gave you, I, I wouldn't, of course there's more, but I, I'd say those are, um, those are like three or four of my favorites. Um, I just don't want to give the wrong message here that, that you know, that that stuff is going to be the kind of the main event. It's not, right. it's supporting. Right. I also do, I, I also think that it depends on the climber as well. You know, if you're operating in the sort of, um, you know, high French sixes, low French sevens, doing like a, you know, like a fierce routine on the rings is probably like not the priority for you. Whereas like if you're more into bouldering or if you're sport climbing in the upper grades, then it's going to be more relevant. And it depends on the climber, it depends on the goal. You know, I think just as we all evolve as climbers, as we go on this journey, we just have to keep, raising the game and, and, and tweaking things up. And I think that's just what I've done with my own climbing each year. I've said to myself, what was I doing last year? Okay, well, if I do all that again, I'm going to be exactly the same climber at the end of the year. <laughs> so what can I add to it? Mm. And I think that just asking that question is important. But but yeah, like the, 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 we're now at the opposite stage that we were at when I started coaching. There's too, there's way too much information now. And now most of the people come to me say that they've just had information overload and they can't see clarity. Mm. So pick what's important. Okay, I just did. It's the forearm extensor trainer and it's those three or four exercises that I gave you on TRX. 
don't go off too like wildly on a tangent, you know, and, and, and just keep it, keep it about the climbing. But I think you also asked, when would you do that? Like, I mean, you typically do that stuff. People's schedules are so different. Like some people, I've noticed that most people like to do a supportive conditioning routine on a rest day from climbing, by which I mean a day when they're not using their fingers, they're probably not training on the hangboard and they're not climbing. And so it generally makes sense to do a routine that involves some antagonist type work, using the rings, um, using a forearm extensor trainer, doing a stretching routine and maybe doing, if you've got time, maybe doing some light cardio as well. Um, you know, just a whole like body health box ticking type thing that you can do on the days when you don't climb, mm. whether that's two or three times a week. Yeah. Awesome. Thanks for that. Yeah. And it's, it's worth the thing that just came to mind for me is like, I've had so many conversations on the show with really good climbers and I haven't met anyone yet who TRX their way to 514 or 515, you know, like maybe some of them do some of it, but they all rock climb a lot, like all the time. They all rock climb a lot. Yeah. But, but you know, it's like, you can see how sometimes the one particular piece of advice will be golden for somebody, but it will be disastrous for somebody, disastrous for somebody else. I mean, someone who's just, who's, who, who, struggles to hold their body on an overhang who has a weak frame who has a weak core and weak shoulders for that person to just carry on trying to address this by climbing alone it's probably not enough mm. you know get that person on the on the rings and on the trx it's going to have a it's going to have a potent effect the key for that person though of course will be introducing this gradually so that i mean wouldn't it be ironic to injure yourself doing a so-called antagonist <laughs> exercise but hey trust me this this happens a lot too you know people jump straight in at the deep end with the rings you've got to build that up as well but you know for, for some climbers it's going to make a huge difference I have uh, one or two more listener questions here I want to ask, and then I want to circle back to your own climbing and some of the things that have helped you improve so much in your late 40s, because I, I really think that's super interesting. But yeah, this is a great question. This is from Jan, and Jan asks, what should climbers who started at a later age, like mid-30s, focus on to progress in climbing, and would that be different from people starting in their 20s? So I really don't think it's, it's any different starting when you're an older climber compared to when you're a younger climber. You just have to start off by focusing on technique, you know, getting good, good footwork, good movement, good route reading, and also supportive tactical skills and developing a, you know, positive, a calm, positive, focused mindset. Those are always the initial priorities, whether you're old or young. And I think that I do, I think the, the only mistake, again, whether you're old or young, is to try and jump in there too quickly and to try and get strong too fast and to pursue too steep a curve. Mm. Um, I think it's really important to understand that climbing is a sport that it's, it's not about like, oh, how much do you want it? Train as hard as you can, no pain, no gain. It, this is, it's the finger tendons, especially are, are, are they're small tendons. They're not like the big muscle groups. You know, you have to just drip feed the, the, the strength training over a period of time. As an older climber, you might feel pressure to, play catch up because you missed a period of your life when you could have trained, get that idea out of your head. Mm. But again, a young, you know, younger climbers feel, they feel pressures as well. They want to keep up with their, their buddies, you know, they're super competitive and they want it all too fast and they don't know how to listen to their bodies and pace themselves. So there's issues for juniors too. But I think the main thing as a source of motivation for older climbers is that, you know, as we know, 
I mean, although I've been climbing all my life, you know, there are still, and there are still so many people who like me who are climbing hard into their 40s, 50s, 60s, and 70s. And some of them started late too. So it's absolutely possible. And it's not one of these, like what I call raw output sports that are all about, you know, how fast you are or how strong you are. There is just so much to bring into the mix with climbing. So I think it's, it's, it's really, it's all to play for. Mm, that was great. Yeah. Thank you. And it's, it's funny, the thing you said about playing catch up. I mean, I started climbing at age 18 and I felt that way. You know, I was just like, damn it, I didn't start at age six. You know, like my finger strength sucks. I've got to, you know, I didn't really discover training and hangboarding until probably my mid 20s. I was maybe 23, 24, something like that, which, you know, for a lot of people listening to this sounds really young, but I felt that way. I was like, all these 18 year old kids around me that have been climbing since they were kids are crushing me. And I've got to like, I've got to triple down on the hangboard to just like squeeze the sponge as hard as I can and try to eke out these strength gains. And it didn't really work. Like it didn't expedite my, my strength. Um, but I have a question for you because one thing in hindsight that I wish I had done was starting to use the hangboard as a supplement earlier on, but with a very, very long view of my finger strength, you know, just like, starting that process of kind of punching the clock and just putting a little bit of time in early on. So you're, you're, good. So pertinent. Such a great question. Yeah. So I'm like, is it appropriate for a new climber to do that? What, do you, yes. what are your thoughts? Yes. We're in an age now where we can say this. Coaches like me used to get shot down in flames for saying like the beginners should use hangboards. It was always just like, you will definitely get injured. Like says who, like from what stats are we going from there? And like what we have to bring in into play is, is pilot error. It's not so much the stage that the climber was at, it's what they did on that hangboard, you know? And so what we, I mean, for example, all these early injury stats on hangboards came out before people even knew about like standing in a pulley rig or standing in a stretch band or like reducing the load on this hangboard. like. Of course, if a beginner goes up to a hangboard and tries to hang the 15 mil edges footless, they're putting some like really bad strain on their fingers. It's like a crazy thing to do. But like if you hang on like 30 mil holds with your foot in a pulley rig and you take 10 kilos off, why is that any different to climbing? Mm. Answer, it's not. And in fact, it's much less likely to injure you than climbing because sometimes when we climb, we, we snatch for holds. We don't catch them correctly. We put a torsional load through our fingers and load them awkwardly etc etc so you just can't construct an argument that hangboarding isn't safe for beginners it's all about how you use it and what you do but where it fits in and what i'm picking up on here is i'm wondering steve if you have the same thing in your climbing that i did which is as a result of not using hangboards in the early stages you developed a chronic weakness at a certain angle range this is what happened to me yeah i could like i mean i've got a guilty secret i, I got to 80 plus <laughs> just by full crimping i'm talking like boning with the thumb locked over <laughs> and i could and i could drag i could hang like this but if you ask me to half crimp with my fingers at 90 degrees i couldn't do it with two hands on a 25 mil rung wow i just couldn't support myself and i could climb it and i was able to climb 80 plus it was a <laughs> chronic weakness but i'm the classic child of the 80s yeah. we didn't know what a half crimp was it was either a full crimp or it was a drag and so Working in later years with the, like, or the last sort of 15 years with some of the guys from Beastmaker, you know, and they originally like 
did some I did some really cool like Dan Varian did like a sort of diagnostic on me and he was like Gresham you can't hide this half crimp weakness anymore you've got to do something about it and you know working on my half crimp over the last 15 years was another example of like something that I did which made a massive of, of course it made a massive difference to my climbing I mean crumbs you don't need to be a, a sports scientist to work out why that might be but you know um it was, uh, and I've virtually closed the gap now. I'm now virtually as strong half crimped as I am full crimped. And it took me nearly 15 years to do that. But like, <laughs> you remember, you know, I came from this era where none of this stuff was known. You just grip the hold the way you grip the hold and you use the holds that you like using and you basically shy away from the holds that you don't like using. And that was totally. how you climb. But of course, you use a hangboard and you, you regularly you know, in a, a structured, strategic and controlled way, you train your fingers through a range of angles, you're not going to get a weakness within your gripping range and you're going to be a more versatile climber. So it makes total sense. Mm. Total sense. It's fascinating. That's actually, Neil, it's so similar to, to my story, actually. I started climbing in a in a really old school type gym. You know, it was everything was like vertical up to maybe 10 degrees overhanging. And just these really old, greasy resin holds, you know, like they're all beat out, no texture on them, lots of full crimps, lots of delicate, you know, slow three points on movements and things like that. And then I also climbed a lot. (laughs) Yeah. So I did that a lot. And then I also climbed a lot on granite boulders, which were much more like sloper, squeezing, compression feature climbing. So same, same as you, like I had good open hand sloper strength relative and then decent crimp strength, but my gosh, I mean, I remember, I think it was the same season that I climbed my first V10. I was in Joe's Valley and a friend of mine wanted to try this. It was either V4 or V5, but it was like a moonboard problem. It was like 45 degrees overhanging with like, you know, 25 mil in-cut holds on it. And I couldn't do it. I, I just didn't have that sort of strength yeah. on a decent hold, lots of weight on my fingers, half crimp. I just couldn't do any of that stuff. And it's still lagging behind for me. I mean, I've been working on it ever since and it's um, it's coming along, but man, it's a slow grind. It's a slow process. And I'm curious if you have any recommendations for me actually, because with the half crimp in particular, like something that's very odd to me still is that it just seems a lot less, like when I train my other grips, they seem to just kind of progress slowly over time. Whereas the half crimp, for whatever reason, just always has seemed like it's all over the place and it, it'll kind of improve oh, for a no. bit. Oh, Why is no. that? Why is that? Oh, look, this is just, <laughs> this is training. And, but also this is just, I mean, the more, the more you study it, the less you know, like it, <laughs> sometimes I think there's just no rhyme, no reason to any of it. Yeah. It does, it does, it does improve over, look. It took me 15 years, you know, and I reckon for one of those years, it probably for like an entire year, it was probably worse. You know, I don't reckon it, I mean, I, I know it dips and I know it goes up and down, but I reckon sometimes it could even dip for an entire year. But if you steady away, I'm said right at the start, like a lot, you, you nailed it when you said a long-term commitment to this thing. That's the key to it because people are seeing these fluctuations and they're going, this is wacko. I'm going on Instagram and I'm seeing all these people who are smashing their benchmark scores. Mm. Like, why am I going down? I'm doing something wrong. Oh, this sucks. I'm not interested in it. Like, I promise you, these people on Instagram, like, they're not doing anything different to you, but maybe they're just stick with it, sticking with it. And maybe they're just like making a post on the day when it goes well, because it will go badly for them too. In fact, it's not a case of badly or well. It's just a case of stick the training in the bank. 
stick the training in the bank, mm. stick the training in the bank and just stick it in the bank and you just keep going. <laughs> and, and, and like, I mean, we could go on a proper geek fest about whether the half crimp is more, you, you, it, I'm, I'm sound, it's sounding to me like you feel that there's more variability in the half crimp than in other grips and the other grips are more consistent. Is that Correct. what you're saying? Exactly. Yeah. I mean, that, that could just be a you thing and that could just be because it's your weakness. I mean, mm. but I do think inherently the half crimp is, it, 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 it's a weird thing to say because it depends out whether you're good at it or not, but it, it takes so much strength to keep it in that position because your fingers are fundamentally trying to be ripped open into a drag. Yeah. You know, where drag is a more passive grip. You know, the tendons are being loaded passively and you're relying to an extent on the friction of the first pad being hooked over the edge. Same with the full crimp. You know, you're kind of like using leverage. You're like hyperextending that first joint, whereas the, the half crimp is just, there's so much leverage on that, you know. And I think that's probably why so many people shy away from it in the first place. You know, right. I coach a lot of beginners who can drag and crimp, but they go, I just haven't got anything there when they tried to half crimp. So they just don't do it. And and you can just, even with modern holds at modern gyms, you can still see climbers falling into this trap. So yeah, like back to your original assertion. I mean, I, I've been, I have been coaching beginners on hangboards, but you've got to be so careful with the message, you know, because again, they're, they're going on social media and they're seeing all this hangboarding stuff. And you've got to be so clear what they do. You know, what are we doing here? It's more about learning initially, like, gripping technique you know the, the finger positioning on these edges but just explaining to someone that there are three ways of well if you want to look at micro percentages there's like five ways but essentially there's like three main ways you can grip an edge each which has a sub stage i mean we could get into bird beaking and all that kind of stuff <laughs> and open crimps and chiseling and la 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 you know but but just like teaching someone like the, the biomechanics of gripping is important and just with lots of weight on their feet after warming up just trying to hold these different finger positions i i, I cannot see an argument against that yeah we're not saying to this climber you don't need to bother like climbing or like buying yourself a pair of climbing shoes. You're just going to like hit this hangboard super hard. <laughs> We're not saying that to this person, obviously. Right, right. Yeah, that's worth reiterating probably is that, you know, this isn't to be, this isn't training time to be taken away from your climbing. This is like something very easy you can do in addition to your climbing uh, to hopefully move the needle over years and years with your finger strength. Um, but yeah, I, I <laughs> the half crimp thing, that's really interesting what you just described because that's kind of my theory is that there's a lot more muscular engagement in the forearm with that grip than your other grips. Uh, and I, I think because I'm now combining my finger strength training with other climbing that I'm doing, I think it's just, it just must be like a muscular fatigue thing that has more variation day to day than my ability to just hang on my tendons that have been developed over years and yeah. years, you know? Because like three finger drag, it's like, it just improves. It just keeps improving. And like, even if I had yeah. a hard moonboard day the day before, I can still PR, but half crimp, mm -hmm. it's it's just all over the place. And, and there's not as much like rhyme or reason as you would think, you know? It's like I moonboard and then half crimp the next day. Sometimes I feel great. And then sometimes it's terrible and it's just bizarre. But you're inspiring me to stick with it for another 10 years. We'll see what happens. Got to stick with it. But you know, like the way, <laughs> now, now here we've got some real dilemma type stuff coming up. You know, the way you want to make some real killer games in your hangboard, you know, I'll, I'll tell you a secret. You know, well, this is no secret. Stop climbing. <laughs> you know, because probably... 
those times when you're half crimped dead, it was because you, you hadn't recovered fully from the moon ball. Right. So this was the phenomenon of lockdown, right? Everybody made killer gains on the hangboard in lockdown because they stopped climbing. And as we've spoken or, you know, as we spoke earlier about the rings, you know, like someone's going to start doing the rings and it's going to do amazing things for their climbing. Someone's going to do the rings. It's not really going to do much for them. Hangboarding, you know, I must have set over 200 hangboard programs for people during lockdown. And I was so like, I learned so much about the way the average intermediate climber responds to hangboarding during lockdown or more, more, more to the point after lockdown, because I was interested to see what was going to happen. Mm -hmm. And you could see, you, you knew what was, you, you, you could tell the type of climber who was going to benefit from this hangboarding, you know, the, this climber who had a lot of experience, who climbed on rock a lot, you know, who was well-traveled and who, you know, you could see, you know, like, I mean, usually I, I kind of gather information from people either from a FaceTime call or from a questionnaire. This person saying to me, you know, I've got loads and loads and loads of climbing experience, but of course it's locked down, set me a fingerboard program and you do. And their fingers get massively stronger and they come out of lockdown and they climb a grade, sometimes two grades, sometimes three grades harder, like insane, like straight hmm. away, bang. And of course they're motivated. They've been cooped up and they go out and they've got stronger fingers, but they know how to climb. So they basically just do what they can do anyway, but they do it on smaller holes. <laughs> yeah, you know? yeah. yeah. Whereas the other climber, you know, someone you could tell is maybe more gym-based, who's got less experience, you know, someone's, oh, you know, I'm not too good with, you know, like my head's sometimes not that good and, oh, but, you know, stuff, stuff going on with my technique that I need to fix. You know, you put this person on a hangboard program and they kind of, end, they probably end up climbing worse. Hmm. You know, I mean, in lockdown, it, hangboarding was the only choice we had, better that than nothing. But they came out of lockdown thinking, well, I did the hangboard program and I, I'm just, I'm back on the wall and I'm feeling pretty rusty and I'm not really, you know, not really feeling it. So this is another, you know, hangboarding became a weapon for me because I only really got into it in the last, you know, after working with Dan and the Beastmaker crew, you know, I, I got into it about 15 years ago. And it was at a point where I would say that I, I, I was you know, I had a lot of experience, technique, and mindset was good. I needed to get stronger fingers, you know. So, so it, it it became a very, very powerful and effective tool. Yeah, it's it's really fun to hear this because uh, Dan's actually coming up on the show. I'm going to interview him pretty pretty soon here, so that'll be really fun to geek out with him. Everybody, make sure you tune into that. This guy, <laughs> fascinating, and it's like. You think you know about finger strength training and then you speak to this guy. Like I learned a lot from him. He, yeah, he's, he's the main man. Make sure you tune in. And Steve, like you might want to allow like two days for that. <laughs> like, like split it into parts. I'm know? like, I'm salivating right now. I can't wait. Yeah, no, he's really, really great. But yeah, I'm, I'm curious Steve, for you. I think that's what, sorry, I just wanted to say. Yeah, I please. Really Go ahead. wonderful, you know, that, that, there's so many influential figures like going back over the years, you know, like people who've like turned on a light for me and who've made me see things in a different way. And that, you know, like I can talk about as we have been talking about, you know, what are these various things that I've learned over the years and made a difference. Some of them I've worked out for myself. Most of them have come from someone else, someone like Dan, you know, and when I think about, you know, all these, because a lot of climbers either maybe don't know how to articulate the stuff that they know that there's the uber natural climbers can just do it straight away and they almost don't need to articulate it they're just good 
and they almost don't even know why. Mm. And then there are some climbers who actually have really like, they've they really thought it through, but perhaps they don't necessarily like want to share it. And then there are the ones who, you know, they have the ability to sort of transfer that knowledge across. And those are the people who've just been so, so important for me over the years. Same. Yeah. I, I totally relate to that. Yeah. Sounds like Dan's one of them. And, and those types of people make really great podcast guests. So I'm, ex- <laughs> I'm excited. I'll be brilliant. Uh, with your own finger strength journey, I'm curious. I mean, it sounds like you were the first type of climber that you described. Like you had the rock sense, you had the experience, you had this glaring weakness, and you made huge leaps and bounds from addressing it on the hangboard. Was it important to you to make progress, to take time away from climbing as much, to to really focus in on the hangboarding? Or did you just kind of sprinkle it in over the long term? Like what, what have been some of the things that have really helped you address that weakness with the half crimp specifically? Well, I mean, I sprinkled it in. I mean, long term, it was a matter of sprinkling it in. Of course, lockdown was self-certifying. You know, it was all we could do. But like over the last 15 years, I guess I made time for it. Mm. And it's, it is simply a matter of saying, and, and it's so many people in coaching have said this to me. It's like, I know I should use the hangboard, but I like climbing too much. Mm. You know, like I just can't make time for it. And it's like, well, okay, when are we going to do this hangboarding then? And you know, one of the classic mistakes is someone tries to do a max hangs routine at the end of a hard bouldering session. I mean, it's going to be totally unproductive. And I dare say that would be really teasing the line for, for injury as well. It's like you have to do this routine, uh, you know, when you feel fresh and revved up and, and you're firing on all cylinders. So sometimes it's just a matter of being smart with it. And, you know, you, you, okay, you want to climb, you don't want to sacrifice climbing time. So, so warm up on the walls, get your bouldering up to the peak level, but just before you try your hardest project, go on the hangboard and do some max hangs. Like don't do it for half an hour, 40 minutes, or you'll be toast. But if you do it for 20 minutes, 15 minutes, actually you'll probably find that you feel stronger when you then get on your project. So it will, it'll help you on the day because you'll feel more recruited, but it will help you long-term because you're, you, you know, you're drip feeding this, these sessions in. And I think what we do know now about hangboarding, again, I dare say anecdotally, although, Clearly, it has been studied extensively to people like Evan Lopez. We see that, that that hangboarding works best when it's drip fed in small doses. It's not about doing some two-hour session on the hangboard once or twice a week. It's about doing a small amount three or four times a week. So you can just you can stick it in there at that crucial point in your climbing session. Like you've been at the gym maybe 40 minutes. You've done your warm-up. You've built up through the grades. You're just And just when you're about to try your project, you do a little bit of hangboarding first initially that might not work for you but play with it you know and then you might find that you you adapt to that um you know whether i think where we have to be very careful is the long and technical conversation is whether hangboarding can be classified as a rest day activity you know because theoretically you know if you (laughs) hangboard on rest days you you never get a rest because it's like rest what we're talking about resting your fingers but i think you know if you do a very very small amount and just effectively just a bit of recruitment, um, you know, even 10 or 15 minutes on the hangboard, you can still potentially recover whilst doing, whilst also getting recruited. I mean, it sounds like an oxymoron, but you yeah, know, that, ma- that makes you sense. really have to look at, we have to look at the climber, we have to look at the stage, we have to look at the volume of training that they're doing. Um, and, you know, if you've done like a really, really hard project bouldering session, like a long, extensive, hard project bouldering session. I mean, some climbers are going to get up the next day and feel like they can 
do well on the hangboard, I'm probably not going to be one of them. Mm. I'm probably going to do some like more volume based climbing the next day, or I'm going to have a rest day and then do my hangs the day after. There's a million different possible combinations, but the overriding, you know, what's the take home is that, you know, some, something has to give here. You can't do, you can't do it all and you've got to make space for things. Mm -hmm. That's great. Um, I had this question for you as well. So when you talked to Dan and discovered that, okay, half crimp is this big glaring weakness for me relative to your crimp and open hand, did you continue training other grip positions or did you just exclusively focus on half crimp training? No, I just ran them down. I just stopped them. Probably shouldn't have done. Probably should have continued other grips, but I just figured that the gap in my case was so big that there just wasn't any point. And, um, you know, those other grips took care of themselves when I climbed because, of course, you know, still at this point, get me on any type of hard boulder problem and I'm not going to, I'm going to go straight to using my full crimp, you know. And, and so, therefore, oh, and the other thing, of course, was really important, trying to use the half crimp when warming up. So I'm using it on V2, I'm using it on V3. I'm just about using it on V4 and then it's opening out on V5, you know, <laughs> but like trying to hold it as long as I can. Huh. So that's the other time when you work on it. And then of course, once I get to over V6, then I'm, I'm full crimping again, you know? So it's almost like, what's the point in full crimping or, or open gripping on the, on the hangboard? Because for me, the weakness was so dramatic. Got it. Now, if the, if the weakness isn't as dramatic, if it's more minor, then I think it brings into the conversation using those other grips on the hangboard. Okay. Um, you know, I say there's other grips. I mean, sorry, it wasn't a question that you asked me, but I feel compelled to talk about it. I used <laughs> to feel quite strongly about not using a full crimp on a hangboard, but I actually do think now, again, it's rather like these kind of these rules from the 1990s that we used to say, you know, oh, just because there were so many full crimping injuries, we kind of concluded that it was a, you know, like a, a high risk grip, but it was more the way, it was the, the way full crimp was being trained back then. You know, it was being trained in this very re repetitive, very sort of toxic way. And I think that, you know, the full, we could, sorry, maybe this is one for Dan. We could go off on a real geek first here, but this is one that comes up a lot in training. People yeah. say, I, I can't full crimp. I hate full crimp. Do, it feels weird. It feels painful. It feels awkward. Do I need it? And I think that if you're one of those climbers and you half crimp everything, it's still worth having a try with the full crimp and, and you know, trying it at lower load levels to see if you can build up, you know, because usually it's just that you've never done it before. And so right. you, you try it at lower load levels. You don't push it super hard and see if you can build up to being able to use it because you might find that it enables you to, to develop uh, or to, to gain superior traction on certain holds, mm -hmm. certain like, you know, wafer like micro edges at certain angles just might feel more stable with a full crimp so you know you you maybe you're missing out maybe you're not like finger length comes into it all sorts of stuff but but yeah worth a worth a try with a full crimp but just don't but don't hammer it yeah i think that's, that's great and um don't hammer it yeah, don't hammer it. Yeah, that's great. Um, and I'll, I'll mention too, I had another conversation already that's been published with Ned Feely, who is like the other half of Beastmaker. He and Dan yeah. started it together and he and I talked about training the full crimp and he goes into quite a lot of detail about that in his book, Beastmaking, uh, for yeah. people that want to hear his thoughts. And um, he makes a great distinction between the crimp and the full crimp, which I thought was interesting. Um, training in a crimped position, but without your thumb wrapped. So your thumb's kind of tucked oh, okay. underneath. And uh, that's, I've been training that way on the fingerboard for years now because 
of skin. Like I would get skin injuries too, on my, me too, me too. yeah, the index because finger. You split, you split this part next to your finger. Right, you right. Yes, totally. And then yeah. also the joint, like wrapping my thumb over my index finger, I would get irritation um, yeah. in my in my dip joint there. And so, yeah, I just, now I keep the same exact finger position, but tuck my thumb underneath and it's so hard. It's so brutally hard. And, you know, at first I had to take tons of weight off to be able to do it, but man, it's, it's made a really big difference in my crimping to, to train that way. Oh, I can fully believe it. I mean, I just don't, don't tend to do that so much because again, it still represents my, my strongest grip, but I, I think you're absolutely right. If you are going to train it on the hangboard, don't do it with the thumb over the top of the, the nail of your index finger. Agreed. But something I would do separately. Um, oh man, <laughs> we, uh, <laughs> We can we can I, I do more do than one of these, Neil. <laughs> we may we might need to do another one, but it's thumb yeah. crimping. Thumb crimping. It's not spoken about at all. Um, obviously, we know about pinching and pinch blocks, and I don't. You don't need me to tell you. And you know, there's so much information about that. But what people speak about or hear about, I hardly see it anywhere. Is thumb crimping. This is not the same as pinching. But I imagine you know, like try this. If your campus board has a kickboard. Because trust me, you are not going to be doing this footless. Stick your feet on the kickboard on your canvas board and see if you can hook your thumbs over the rungs and crimp them. Just your thumbs. Yeah. Now, there was a particular project of mine at Mallon, that the, the AC Plus that I did, in fact, that this was the, the weird hold on the crux was not a pinch. Like, it didn't work pinching it. You had to actually engage your thumb and crimp with it. And I, I, I trained specifically for it by... By doing this with my no, but the, but but I know this sounds like I'm talking about one route and it's really esoteric. I'm telling you, it's a total game changer because like the number of times when I'm climbing, in, this isn't going to make a difference much for bouldering unless it's unless you come across that type of hold when you're bouldering. But for endurance-based climbing on limestone with spiky holds, the number of times I've rested by like releasing the strain on my fingers and just hooking my thumbs over these holds and crimping with my thumbs. It's almost like sticking a sky. It's almost like being pumped out of your mind and sticking a sky hook on the hold and clipping into it because it's a completely <laughs> different thing. You can be box pumped and hook your thumbs over and crimp with them. It's like, you know, I speak the truth because everybody knows like that the thumb catch, like finding the thumb catch on rock is important, but you can develop that. And like, I, I would say, that, I mean, you know, this is something that I discovered by accident, but I've now used a lot subsequently. I love how geeky this is. This is amazing, dude. And it's it's really funny, actually. I mean, I I relate, and I I'm just thinking right now. Like, I think that's a big part of why I've always climbed better on rock than in the gym. You know, I've always I've always done better on rock climbing, and it's it's so often that you can get your thumb on some texture, yeah. or something, you know, and use your thumbs. And in the gym, you just can't really do that. Um, but I've never trained my thumbs for crimping, so. I'll, I'll give it a you, shot. And you make gains like a, <laughs> like you you make gains like a rocket because you've never done it before. And wow. like, I mean, in a way, this is my like little sneaky kind of almost like claim to. Am I allowed to tell this? No one's listening, are they? Because like Steve <laughs> McClure went on my um on my my Malum route sabotage the eight C plus, and he found this top boulder like really difficult. And this, I mean, because like bouldering is my biggest weakness and like, and Steve McClure is obviously the king of Malham and was the king of UK sport climbing. He's climbed 9B. And he, and he went on my route and he sent me an email. I was like, man, this move is like really, really hard. And I was like, oh no, no, I'm sure it can't be. But 
I can only put it down to the fact that it's got this thumb crimp on it, which nobody trains. And like <laughs> even the mighty Steve McClure is getting on this hold and he's thinking, I can't use that. But it's because I spent six months with my feet on a kickboard, hooking my thumbs <laughs> over around the canvas board that I developed the strength for this, for this hold, you know? Wow. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. Um, this is a great opportunity, actually. I'm going to share one more thing that's kind of similar to this. This was a funny light bulb moment for me, but um, I climbed at Smith Rock for years and very often I've got pretty big fingers. A lot of the crimps there are three finger crimps for me, you know, like full crimping, thumb wrapped over the the front, but your pinky doesn't have room to fit on the hold. And um, I remember I was, I was trying, I was briefly trying a route called Big R, really a beautiful 14A there. And having a really hard time with the crux move, which is just a powerful move off this three finger crimp. And somehow I found a photo of my friend Ryan Palo, uh, who had done the route on that move. I saw a photo of him on that move and I zoomed in. I was like, no way. And he was full crimping with his pinky wrapped over his ring finger the same way that you wrap your thumb over your index. And I had never seen that before. And I forget about it all the time still. I forget that that's an option because it's a strange, it's just strange, but it works. It's it's a really but did sneaky... Did you then go back and do that and send? No. <laughs> no, oh, I, okay. I, I didn't, but I've, I've subsequently used that grip on other things. And yeah, I mean, you get a fourth finger on there and it's it's awkward, but it's worth trying and, and training a little bit. Yeah, yeah. Um, I guess like, I mean, it, it's it's all these things you just got to practice them, right? It's, right. You got to watch using something something in earnest for the first time, and uh, I just sort of slightly think about the fact that you're twisting that little finger a little bit, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, I mean, pinky injuries are surprisingly common, but I, it's all these things. I mean, crumbs you can develop the tendon strength to go climb action direct as long as you're progressive and you, you don't just go like straight in there with footless mono everything has to be built up progressive and it and progressively and in increments yeah that's a great point yeah well uh neil how are you feeling man we've been talking for two hours and 20 minutes already and uh i've i could keep going but i i want to check in with you how are you feeling well i mean it's um i'm working on my endurance that's for sure (laughs) (laughs) i mean i know we were gonna we were gonna touch upon keto diet weren't we but i mean it's another whole podcast maybe we'll do another one okay okay (laughs) um because we you know because we i think we did inevitably like pick up stuff along the way that we hadn't even planned to speak about totally yeah you know and um we yeah we 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 should probably uh maybe we should quit while we're ahead i don't know (laughs) Yeah. Okay. That sounds good. Let's definitely save the keto diet conversation for another conversation. We can, we can do that separately because I I agree that could be a whole hour at least. Um, do you think it's worth touching on climbing your hardest after 45 and some of the changes that you made that, that have led to that? Or do you want to save that too? Well, I I think that I, I covered, you know, so many of these details that I added, like the antagonist training and the working on the half crimp and from a physical perspective, but I, I think that the, the biggest things were more mental for me. Why am I climbing shut up? I mean, to be, to be fair, like, um, I, I kind of stopped climbing. I st- sorry. I stopped sport climbing it in my late twenties because I just got into going on expeditions and, you know, you obviously spoke with Tim. He was my partner in crime. We went off, you know, around the world. I think this was probably a bit before people were thinking, well, it was way before people were thinking about carbon footprint, but we went expeditioning and we went to 
Mongolia and Vietnam and Cuba and all sorts of like kind of like off piste like off off the beaten track places and we weren't thinking about climbing hard we were just thinking about having experiences you know and we certainly did and then I found myself you know in my my early 40s um and then my wife became pregnant um with with Max my son and um you know it suddenly dawned on me that I didn't have forever you know, I'm not saying, I mean, I'm hoping I'm still going to be climbing when I'm 80, but like didn't have forever to maybe some of those goals that I'd forgotten about, like the, the big milestones, you know, the AA on site, the HC red point, this type of thing. And as I said earlier, you know, it's this, my friend Gaz Parry gave me a bit of a poke about this. And he said, come on, Neil, you know, what about your first HC? And, and but I think the difference was, you know, I, I felt like I'd I, I wouldn't say that I definitely wasn't at the stage where I felt totally satisfied with my climbing. I knew, I knew I had more to do, but I think I felt like I'd had so much fun going off and doing all that expedition stuff. And, and that I felt like I was really, I could really devote myself to a performance period because a lot of people in coaching come to me and say, the thing I hear this all the time, I know I should do a red point, but I don't really feel like I want to. And it's like, there is no should, you know, no one's telling you, you don't have to do a red point. Like some people feel almost like guilty if they're not pushing themselves. It's like, if you're not wanting to go and climb a project, there's, there's a reason for that. Like, don't, don't go and try a red point. If you, if you're not feeling it like inside, because you're just going to have a horrible experience, put yourself off project climbing even more. But because I'd done this like tenure, this like decade of like traveling and having like loads of like low pressure fun climbing i felt ready to focus and be disciplined and the other thing was that then of course my son was born and i went through the the classic you know the, the paradigm shift that every parent goes through and suddenly you realize that actually for the first time climbing isn't the most important thing anymore mm. and that was amazing because it really just flipped the, the whole of psychology it's like on one hand you have to push for this goal as if the most, as if it's the most important thing. Because if you don't treat this goal seriously, you're not going to achieve it. But on the other hand, you need a way of like flipping it and, and making out that it's like tricking yourself into thinking that it's not important. And that was the effect that, that having kids had. And the other thing, like it's unbelievable. Like every parent will say the same thing. You know, you, you can't believe how tiring it is and how little time you have. <laughs> and so it just felt like, almost like one of those dreams that you have when you're running and like someone's got, you've got weights on your legs and, and you, you're, you're trying to climb and you're getting sleepless nights and you haven't got any time and you're just thinking like, what am I doing? But, but strangely, strangely, it had the effect of, and what I loved about this was um, in coaching, the challenge is always to distill the information, to find clarity and to find the most important thing that this person is looking for. You can't hit them with a big waffly baffle of like, tell them a hundred things and hope that they'll, you know, that's no good. You got to find the important thing. And so what I felt was being a dad, trying to climb HC in my mid forties, I had to find what was important in my training. I had to make every second, every hold that I pulled on, every foothold that I stood on had to count for something. And there was no junk miles. There was no grazing on climbing the way that I did before. Oh, I'll do a bit of this and I might as well do a bit of that. There was like, I do my, I do my thing and I go and I go home to my, my wife and my child, you know? And so 
this brought out this real focus and this real direction and this, you know, this real sense of purpose, coupled with the fact that also, you know, the pressure was off a bit because I had more important things to do than send hard routes. And this seemed to bring out like a new chapter for me, a new, a new feeling of like sort of power and confidence in my climbing, which I hadn't experienced before. And also, I really do think it's the, above all, it is this thing about taking the pressure off because you look at the red pointing grades, you know, the guys who can just, and girls who can just keep on putting their hat in the ring, keep on smiling, keep on enjoying it. I always think of people like Chris Sharma, that guy just keeps going. And it comes back to what I said earlier about finishing line, you know, mm. he's having, he's out there on the crag, he's having a ball, he's with his friends, he's doing his moves. You know, he's intrinsically connected. He's not, he's not trying to rush it. He's not trying to get it over with. He's just out there doing it because it makes him feel good. And I felt that like, you know, because my, 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 my time on the crag felt more precious now. It was, and so I, I'm out, I'm, I'm, I'm out on the crag and it's like, I just felt that I just dialed into a new, yeah, new level with it all mm. as a result of that. And, and that, and that, that seemed to translate to harder grades. I love it, man. And I, I have to ask a self-serving question here. I have this question in front of me, and um, because that's not a that's not an uncommon story. Like Tim Emmett actually had a really similar story. He had kids, and that helped focus him. And all of a sudden, his training quality and intention went up. And it's you know he's probably going to climb nine A this year. Um, yeah. What's the takeaway for someone like me? I'm 33 years old. I am not married. I don't have kids. I don't know if I will have kids. And I have this lifestyle where, you know, it's, it's amazing. I have this opportunity to chase weather and spend a lot of time on rock, but with that, and I think pe people that experience the people that have nine to five jobs and go to the climbing gym after work experience a similar thing. They, there's always these distractions. There's always someone doing something really fun and you can just jump in with your friends and just have a good time. Um, there's always things pulling you away from the kind of focus that you're describing. So I'm curious, like, what's the takeaway for someone like me who still wants to improve significantly and I don't want to wait right. till I'm 45? Right. And <laughs> Yeah, so this is really important. Yeah. So, so the thing is that, that you must never see that this the kind of social fun type climbing sessions as detracting from the, the serious structured training, like don't see them as something that are they're not taking you further away from the goal. They're actually taking you closer to it. Mm. I have a golden rule in coaching and in, in setting training programs. I set someone a training program of anything between, let's say, um, you know, eight and 16 weeks in length. They follow this training program and then they feed back to me at the end. Yeah, I followed the plan. I'm feeling super strong. Right, I want to do another one. And I say, well, no, I'm afraid you can't do that. And they're like, what, what? But like, I want to do another training plan. I'm like, no, no. What was the training for? You need to go out and just, you just need to freestyle for a bit. Mm -hmm. Go climbing, you know, send, if you, if you, if you haven't got things that you want to send, just go climb nice stuff, hang out with your, hang out with your buddies, you know, and like you, you have to, and, and usually in any training plan. So, so I, I, people have begged me for another training plan. I refuse to do it. I'll, I'll say a minimum of two months, you know, where they have to just go climbing. And equally within that training program, nine times out of 10, each week, I will set this person what I call a freestyle session where they can just do what they want. Because I think the structure can start to become a prison mm. and the training sort of, 
from a physical perspective, it can. I think you can lose your your adaptability as a climber and your kind of nose. You can lose your kind of instinct if you're always within this kind of structure. Maybe this isn't quite what you were talking about. I don't no, know, this you know, is this is great. This is super relevant for me. Yeah. Like you can become too like structured and 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 performance orientated and spreadsheet focused and. You know, you think of like, you just have to bring it back to those guys, you know, the, the top guys who are just, a lot of them are just climbing. And, and so I think that, that freestyle stuff is, you, you have to have it there at a micro level within a week, or even if you have a structured session, can you put like, like put a 30 minute block in that session where you can do what you want? Hmm. You might do you might do two hours of structured stuff and thirty minutes freestyle, and equally so that's on a micro level. And then a, a like meso level within a structured plan, you might have a week where you just freestyle, or at a macro level, you might follow a structured sixteen week plan and then have two months when you're unstructured. Don't ever fall into the trap of thinking that unstructured stuff isn't beneficial. It all fits together, and you, you have to have that there as part of being a it's, as part of being a climber, but just also fundamentally being a human. You know, we we do need that freedom and that the opportunity to express ourselves and be creative as climbers. Mm. Oh, I love it. That's so valuable, and yeah, I mean, it really it really resonates with me because. I'm the type of person that, uh, you know, I get excited about something and then I, I kind of get caught up in the trap of like, this is great. This is exciting. This is working. More of it is better, you know, and more is better, more is yeah, better. No. But like anything, no. I mean, training has helped me in climbing, spending more time, like hitting the road and spending more time on rock has helped me in climbing. And it's really about like everything in life. It's about balance and it's about paying attention balance. to what you're inspired by and listen to your body, listen to your, your mind and your motivation. And, and, and that's, that's tough because I often want it to just be formulaic, you know, like I want to know what to expect. I want to have a plan and I don't like the idea that I have to be fluid and flexible, but that's yeah. part of being a human. And I've it's benefited a lot. In a climb. Yeah. I've, I've benefited a lot from that. Like for, for years, I treated myself like a robot, uh, for years, like without stop. And it's been really helpful for me in the last couple of years to kind of tune back into like the more vibey, you know, the more feeling based uh, parts of myself in my climbing and training. And yeah, it's been really helpful and it's still challenging. I still struggle with that all the time. Yeah. It's liberating as well. You know, it, it's, it's fun. It's fun to do that. It's, it's so important. And, you know, look around at the top climbers and they're, they're all doing that too. Um, but also, I think, you know, we didn't, we almost didn't need to have the, the diet nutrition conversation because what you said so pertinently summarized the approach to, to nutrition, like even more that when you said more is better. And I think when people try a diet that starts to work for them, you know, as did I with, with low carb and keto, you know, you, you then go in a little bit deeper and it works even better. And then there's a tipping point. Mm. when it stops working because you overcook it. And I've seen so much, like it surprises me. I, I feel like this is so simple and so obvious, but it really isn't. This climber will say, never diet it's, or never follow. You know, it's just so bad for you. And it's like, well, yeah, but look what you did. It's like, it's not surprising that was bad for you. You just pushed it and pushed it and pushed it and pushed it until you right. hit the red line. It's like training. You can overdo it. You have to cycle it, you know, 
do like and also you have to manipulate it according to the stage you're at in your training campaign if you're in a load phase if you're working on strength if you're working on endurance if you're peaking when you're getting closer to doing your project you're changing this and then when you do your project and you just come off the gas you know like you've got to cycle this mm. um so you know I, I just i think it's even more likely that from what i can see people are falling into this trap even more with diet with nutrition than they are with training but just thinking more is better i think you're right yeah i, I mean i'm raising my hand i'm i was that person for sure um and mm -hmm. it's it's come yeah it's 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 taken a long time to even feel like I might be able to trust myself to to try anything like that again, to even try a structured way of eating in any way, you know, because because I'm I know my own tendencies. Um, mm. But yeah, yeah, thanks for all that. I mean, you said some things in our first phone call that uh, about the keto diet and the impact that it's had on you in the. I mean, the incredible impact that it's had on your climbing. So I think we should, I would love to have that conversation if you're up for it, but um, let's leave that as a teaser for next time and we can do another one of these. Um, this has been amazing, man. You've given me two and a half hours of just just gold. I mean, you just you you just are so experienced and um, you're, you're so well-spoken and this is just, we went all sorts of directions that I didn't even have in my notes that I'm so glad we did because um, you've just shared so much for me and, and for everyone listening. So thank you. And I just want to give you a chance in return. Like, do you have anything you want to plug? Um, can people hire you as a coach right now or any, anything that you're doing that you're excited about sharing with people? Not, not really. I mean, um, you know, I'm on my Instagram, you can follow me there and I've got a website and, you know, I just, oh, I don't really, it feels like it's been such a great conversation i don't want to almost spoil it by some sort of commercial <laughs> plug for me at the end i'm i'm kind of cool no i mean honestly thanks i work for la sportiva and petzl and, and osprey you know they um i use their kit i i think that's that really that's that that's kind of you to offer me the opportunity but just to flick that back and say you know these things don't happen unless the right questions are asked and and you know you with your level of you know, insight and intellect on climbing, it really did feel like, um, you know, you forced me to dig deep. So thanks, thanks to you, Steve. Oh, well, I appreciate that. Yeah. It's, it's so much fun to meet you and to have conversations like this and can't wait to do it again. Let's do round two soon. All right, man. Cheers. Thank you. Okay. Take care. Hey friends, I hope you enjoyed that one as much as I did. If you guys want to hear me and Neil do another round and talk about his experience with the keto diet, he had amazing results from that in his own personal climbing, let us know. I really want to have that conversation with Neil, but I only want to do that if it's something you guys are interested in. So please let us know if that's something you want to hear. If you want to learn more about Neil or follow him on Instagram or check out his website, I put links to all the things in the show notes at thenuggetclimbing.com. And if you like this episode, I also put a short list of related episodes that I think you'll enjoy. So you can check all that out at thenuggetclimbing.com. Before you go, don't forget to check out Frictitious Climbing. Head over to frictitiousclimbing.com to shop for hangboards and accessories and use code NUGGET at checkout for free shipping. The Easy Board and the Hangboard Doorway Mount 
are two of the coolest products I've seen in the hangboard space. Also, be sure to check out Petzl. Shop for Petzl carabiners and quick draws at your local climbing shop or online at Petzl.com. My personal favorites are the Petzl Spirits. Be sure to check out Fizzy Vantage. I take their supercharged collagen every day to support tendons and ligaments in my fingers. I really think it helps, so check them out and use code NUGGET15 at checkout. Be sure to check out Crimped. Head over to crimped.com or find the Crimped app. You can try it out for free. And if you love it and want even more, consider signing up for Crimped Plus to unlock a ton of additional workouts and the ability to create your own custom training plans and unlock skill templates. There's a ton of value in that app. It's a super good deal. And finally, be sure to check out the Arcteryx film, Free As Can Be. It's awesome. It's 31 minutes long. If you love trad climbing and adventure climbing and stories from Yosemite, you will absolutely love this film. Be sure to check it out. And that's it, friends. Thanks for listening. I appreciate you guys. I hope you have an amazing week and we will see you next time. Like we do it, like we do it.